Blue Diamond Honey Roasted Almonds are my love language. Sweet, salty, irresistible. But the crunchy and tangy salt and vinegar also give me the feels. The choice is hard with flavors so good. Blue Diamond Almonds. Super flavor, all on a superfood. So thank you so much. Oob to Joe's Maine, you've got Lola. Yeah, you do. How, how, where's my puppy picture? Awesome Annie Svensson, nice to see you. Dry Toast, the best name on YouTube. Our BC boy, YJ Overlander, he'll 4x4 four four over you. Yes, he will. And let's see. Oh, there's Scowling Greg O'Brien. There he is. And thank you, Space Tree, once again for that great super chat. And um, I think we're almost done here, guys. I think we are almost done. Let's see what's happened here. Oh, another one. Thank you, Spacey Tree. Very much appreciate your second super chat. I do. Thank you. The Unknown, how you doing? Luscious Jewels, good to see you. And a Bombshell Bomber, thanks for coming back. Gong Show, good to see you. And uh, anybody else in here that I'm missing? I don't think so. Uh, Evan Walters, Eddie Haskell, here we go. From the mountains of central British Columbia to you listening around the world... This, my friends, is Spaced Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott, sitting in the captain's chair of SOR headquarters. We welcome you to tonight's show on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Tonight's show is brought to you by Chive Charities. Help make the world 10% happier by visiting Chive Charities today. You can find them on our website. We got a great show for you tonight. We're going to talk some sea monsters, megalodon, giant sharks that are ready to feed on me and others built like me. Max Hawthorne, Kronos Rising, is here tonight. And I've already asked Max to promise not to scare the daylights out of me. Dirty Filth on the YouTube side and Twitch. We'll be drawing cartoons once again. And then in hour number three, yeah, the Swamp Dweller is back with another spooky story. Tim Senor filling in on the UFO report, and Shirky Poo will have the news. Let's get right to it. Max Hawthorne is an American author and screenwriter referred to as the Prince of Paleo Fiction. He is best known for his Kronos Rising series of sci-fi suspense thrillers, and of course, his work on everything to do with the sea. If it's not Kraken, Megalodon, or these giant sharks that could literally eat 16 people at once... I don't know what else he does with his time because he is that good. But you know what? Max is one of the top writers when it comes to everything to do with monsters. The last time he was on, he scared the daylights out of me, and I expect that to happen again, giving me nightmares all night long thinking about Megalodon coming into my bathtub and chomping my toes off 
or something along those lines. It's bound to happen. It's bound to, because Max Hawthorne will make it happen. Max Hawthorne, my friend, how you doing, buddy? Welcome back to Spaced Out Radio. Oh, I'm going to take you off mute there. Yeah, please. <clears throat> Sorry, I was laughing at all the everything you were saying. Um, hi, uh, it's great to be back. Love your uh, audience and everything, and uh, hi. Yeah. I got to ask you, man, why, why Monsters of the Sea? That, that just freaks me out, man. Just freaks me out. Why do I research them and write about them? Yeah. Or what's the thrill? Uh, well, because it freaks you out. So there you go. Asked and answered. You know. I mean, I, I did a show the other day, and uh, they were we were discussing like stuff, and I think that unseen, huge, deadly, dangerous marine monsters, predators, whatever you want to call it, are just scarier than terrestrial creatures and i referenced for example um like jurassic park or jurassic world when you have raptors coming at the people or tyrannosaurus rex coming at the people or any any of those things they're all you know great special effects and scary as all heck but none of them hold a candle to the opening scene of jaws where that poor girl in the dark gets grabbed by this unseen monster from beneath and ripped back and forth screaming and crying and until she's pulled under and devoured it's just there's no comparison, you know. It's just that much scary. You can't see it coming. Nope. You know you can't fight it. Nope. You certainly can't outswim it. Nope. You know. So I mean, if you put all that together, I mean, it's just it's it's nightmare fuel. And you know, it's my specialty. It's what I like to write about. So. Well, let's just face it. Nobody should go more than ankle deep in the ocean, because something in there, it doesn't matter how big or how small, wants to kill you. It doesn't like you. Especially in the Cronus Rising series. I mean, that's even worse there. So, oh. Max, I don't know how you do it, my friend, but here you are, and I'm telling you, I've already got goosebumps. We haven't even started. We're two questions in, man. Two questions in, and I'm already got you know getting freaked out here with you because I know later on in the show uh, we are going to get into some sea monsters, and I'm looking on my floor right now, and I have got a giant beetle on there, giant beetle. That's terrible. Really? How did it even get in here? See monsters. You just bring the monsters in here right off the bat. So let's talk about your series of books called Chronos Rising. I know you have a little bit of a treat for our audience here regarding your latest book on Chronos Rising and all your books can be found on Amazon or your website. Uh, you know, tell us about Chronos Rising. What's the inspiration there? Um, I mean, the series overall or the, yeah. or the latest edition. Uh, so the first book came out in 2014, even though it was written like a decade before that, you know, you marriage, children, all that stuff takes the wind out of your sail sometimes or whatever, you know, you're busy. But, um, and the story was centered around the notion that, uh, there could be an isolated, uh, in this case, a caldera off the coast of Cuba, which is like a volcanic Island where the entire top of the volcano is gone. So all this left is this bowl shaped depression. And I set that up so that 65, 66 million years ago, when the asteroid struck, the tidal wave swamped that and turned it into a giant saltwater aquarium, thereby imprisoning an entire ecosystem of Cretaceous nasties, ranging from the apex predator of all time, this, these giant pliosaurs, to fish that are still as big as a white shark, to monster squid, you name it, is in there. And that 
environment is what cracks open at the beginning of the story and releases this immense predator into the oceans and it starts to do what a predator does in a new environment. It explores, it feeds, it sets up boundaries for itself, etc. And of course, in this case, since there are now human beings and boats and whales and all that, it encounters a lot of things along the way as it exerts dominance, etc. And it comes into conflict with the protagonists of the story, a man and a woman who eventually end up having to try and kill this thing because it just plain won't stop eating everyone and everything. Okay. Just like you, you know, the stuff you like. Yeah. And it's a, it's quite a terrifying animal. I mean, if you picture a pliosaur is basically, if you took a crocodile, let's say 80 feet long, but with a short tail. So it was much more massive. And in place of those four little stubby legs, you gave it four very large, powerful flippers so that it could swim as fast as a blue whale. And you set this loose in our oceans today, nothing could stand up to it. See? So, I mean, that's basically what's happened. And from there, that whole that whole story, it was sort of like like the hashtag that they came up with first for the book back then, Jaws meets Jurassic Park. That's literally what it basically was. And at the end of the story, though, I left the door open to start the whole series, which along came like the Cronus Rising Kraken trilogy, which initially was supposed to be one novel, but nobody will publish a novel that's 2,000 pages long, not even Stephen King. Okay. <laughs> so they broke it into three big books, you know, five or 600 pages each. And that came out. And then there were a couple of novelette and novella that came with it. And there's a bunch of other stuff. And it just keeps chugging along. You know, it's a, almost reached like a dystopian type of setup now because I have it set in the future in the year 2045 where these monsters have multiplied and basically now dominate the oceans of the world. They've caused tremendous harm. They've interrupted the food web they've caused you know fish stocks to crash all sorts of things again and you can't go out on the ocean like unless you're in like a large steel vessel i mean if you think you're going out on a jet ski you you know that's a death wish a surfboard swimming no you know i mean there's so many creatures now out there prehistoric things that occupy the oceans so it's quite an environment to set up for people some of the creatures that you use in there are, you know, like you say, paleo fiction. I mean, they may be real creatures from one point in time, but as of now on our earthly planet, they are for the better known part to be extinct, except what I believe Megalodon still exists. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for you, you know, us humans, we really don't understand whether or not these creatures were very violent, whether they were bashful whether they were you know hunter gatherers or whatever they may be everything is all you know just you know theory on them but for you creating these monsters and the and the stories behind them how did you try to judge what these creatures were like and how they would act well the first thing is you want to kind of draw on extant life forms if you can to try and kind of immerse yourself into it so for example with a pliosaur you might look at the nile crocodile in terms of behavior you see terrible competition between like the alpha males of the species a lot of interspecies aggressiveness and such larger animals will kill and eat smaller ones but when it comes to prey they're voracious insatiable for the most part unless they've just eaten and very aggressive they'll take down 
larger animals, sometimes even attack elephants, hopefully by mistake. That usually doesn't go well. But the point is, is so they're, they're very aggressive. So when I was working with the pliosaurs designing them, you try and like, uh, it's, it's, it's one thing to put yourself into the mindset of a character. And I've written people from heroes and heroines to the most despicable and loathsome villains that you could imagine. And each and every time you want to become that person so that you can make them believable. You want to see people see things from their eyes, their activities, etc. So they immerse themselves in the character. But when you're writing about, say, a 200-foot octopus with acid that oozes out of its suckers that can melt steel, yes, I did that, um, you know, you're dealing with an entirely different entity. It's like an alien life form, something extraterrestrial. So you want to put yourself in there, but you want to relate to the animal and how it sees its environment. So all of a sudden now, people are not human beings. There may be warm bloods or bipeds or warm-blooded bipeds. Eventually, they're hors d'oeuvres once this thing finds out that these ships that attacks have people on it. See? But how the animals interact, there's a male and female kraken and how they interact with each other. And there's a, it's like an art form where you put yourself into the character of the creature and you don't want them to be the same. Everyone has to be different. So a sperm whale's mindset is different than an orca's. And an orca's mindset is different from a giant octopus's. And a giant octopus is different from a shark and so forth and so on. So if you can do all that in such a way that you achieve a suspension of disbelief for your readers and they feel like they can, they themselves are now this thing, this creature, you know, it loans itself to telling a better tale. Max Hawthorne is our guest tonight, author of the Kronos Rising series, his latest book to come out on that series. Just a few days ago, Kronos Rising, Purgatory. And, hell on Earth. Uh, yeah, hell. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, pretty much Canada right now, you know, with the travel restrictions. But nonetheless, moving on here, not to get political or anything like that, Max, for you, dealing with, you know, this whole breed of, of dinosaurs and, and humans coming together under one vast you know, ecosystem, as you call it, uh, in, a, uh-huh. in an old volcano... How do the characters survive? Well, the interaction um, normally in most of the series is not in the volcano. This thing got out. Like this volcano you're talking about is a giant saltwater lake. There is a rainforest section around a good part of it, but it's an eight-mile-wide lake like a giant fishbowl. And when it cracked open, some of the stuff got out and some didn't. So there's still a lot in there, let's say. But uh, So the people that – if we're talking about people who've gone to the caldera – survival there is very very iffy because there's some stuff in the caldera that isn't even supposed to be there um i mean should i start getting into that now yeah, or do you yeah, want to yeah let's let's start it off now my friend let's right. get people so excited we'll, this we'll be talking about purgatory then if we're gonna if we're gonna go that route sure so that's okay works right. for me so so basically these pliosaurs got out of this caldera it's called diablo caldera and this this Island is off limits by per the government, etc. Um, so there are other things in this caldera. There are monstrous sharks. There are squid the size of a giant squid. There are twenty foot predatory fish called bulldog fish, Cyphactinus. There's all sorts of nasties in the water, and there's a few things on land. One of the things I did when I had the first human visitors, modern humans, to visit the island. And I think it was in Kraken Volume 2, is I also created, I wanted a, a dinosaur there, okay? And 
you know, you got to think, well, I've got this relatively small rainforest. It's only a couple miles wide and eight miles long. I can't have T-Rexes running around or giant sauropods or, you know, triceratops and like that. I need something small, but something nasty and something that would fit into the environment. So I decided to go with raptors, sort of like the velociraptors, they call them in Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. But I needed some raptors, some dromaeosaurs that would have been imprisoned in there since the fall of the dinosaurs and that had adapted to that environment where they had a giant saltwater lake and a, an area of rainforest. And I set it up so that eventually that these raptors could, since most of their food would be come from the lake, that they could actually run on the surface of the water, literally at 50 miles an hour, picture raptors that can run across the water, packs of them. Okay. And I set it up so they had specially evolved feet where they had scales on their toes that normally on the ground when they're on land are held erect like sails in a sailboat. And as they put their feet down running in the water, those scales all fold down like flaps, quadrupling the size of their feet like snowshoes almost and allowing them to run at speed across the surface of the water. And so they do that. See, so this was a great life form to put into the caldera. But the problem with the people discovered is that, and I'm giving a lot of spoilers away here, is that while the Kraken series is going on, there are military organizations that have gotten their hands on pliosaurs and weaponized them. And they have gotten their hands on their DNA and they have started experimenting on, you know, the usual trying to make super soldiers, et cetera, out of it and imbuing them with the characteristics of these prehistoric marine reptiles. And these experiments have failed for the most bunch, creating hordes and hordes of these half man, half reptile, drooling, slobbering, flesh eating, mindless things, which it turns out this organization has been dumping in the caldera in the rainforest, parachuting them in and capsules and stuff. So now there are hundreds of them in there, eating everything in sight, etc. And when people go there, you're on the menu. So you've got these naked, scaly, six and a half foot tall, hypermuscular fang things coming at you that drag you down, rip open your stomach and start eating your intestines while you're still alive. And that's part of the story. See, so the people that go to the caldera, when they get there, they find they have a problem with their hands. In uh, Purgatory, the hero of the series, who himself has been affected by this and transforms, ends up there with the submersible, not realizing what he's getting himself into. So Purgatory is him in a pitched fight for the entire length of the novella, trying to survive an ongoing hit-and-run battle with hordes of these creatures and what happens along the course of that. So it, one person called it a uh, Jurassic Park meets World War Z. And that's kind of an apropos description. Sorry, I talk a lot. No, you know, no, you ask questions. no, no. I Just mean, I, I think that's a, that's a great description because it's kind of for, for people who may not have heard your books. It's Jurassic Park meets Tom Clancy. Literally. That's, that's what it is. Thank you. I like that. I do. I, and I, and I mean that as a, as a big compliment to you. That's that's for sure. Considering, uh, no offense to you or anybody else, Tom Clancy is what really got me back into reading as an adult. And he, uh, you know, God rest his soul, man. He played an important part in me uh, getting to enjoy books for the first time ever in my life. So, I mean, that whole excitement and, and thriller side of everything, I mean, how does that not grip you? It grips you, man. Yeah, I, I read his books to learn how to write about submarines and stuff. So... 
Yes. I mean, I'll never forget uh, uh, one book, totally off tangent here. I I remember one book where he actually started writing this one piece in Vancouver. And I knew the roads that he had his his villain driving on. And I'm I'm reading this at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, oh, my God, I know where this guy is. Should I drive out there? Should I go try and find him? Like, I was that into it, man. <laughs> that into it. I was like, holy cow. That's never happened to me before or since. But but uh, um, for you, though, how much fun do you have writing these books in the Chrono series? A lot, except that I don't always get a lot of sleep. You know, like I had a deadline for Purgatory where I had to edit 4,200 something words in a day. And I don't mean just edit. I mean, edit, re-edit, polish, micro-polish, you know, et cetera. And then I was supposed to read through the entire novella, which was 30 something thousand words on top of it all in a day. I mean, it was like brutal. I, I literally was like passing out at, at the computer and all that. But uh, no, it's a, it's a blast. I mean, I invented raptors that run on water. You know, who gets to do that? There's even a scientific name for them, so it's like uh, it's really it's really cool, you know. You get to breathe life, and, and the, my readers are awesome. I mean, like I, I've had people tell me everything from like you know that find this stuff scary, like you you know you would describe and all that. I mean, people who said like you said that they got back into reading because of my books and stuff. I've had people that are dyslexic that were able to actually read better because of the series. I mean, all sorts of things. I even had one guy recently message me and tell me, I guess he finds me hilarious from some of the posts I do and stuff. And he was saying how, you know, he used to live in Queens and he moved to the UK and he said, if I had a a friend who was as beep funny as you, he goes, I never would have left, you know? So it's, it's great. You meet a lot of really nice people. Ice-T knows Ice-T, which is why I get my iced tea at Raisin Cane's. We're both fresh all day. Sometimes we're sweet. Sometimes we're unsweet, Jack. So chill out with your favorite iced teas this summer at Raisin Cane's. One love. It's hurricane season. Flood insurance can help you avoid paying out of pocket for costly damage. It's time to trust your instincts. Get flood insurance and protect the life you've built. Visit floodsmart.gov. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a fun job, you know? I mean, I, I work my office. If, if I move the camera around, I'm surrounded by giant stuffed fish that I caught, tribal masks, fossils, paintings. You know, it's like working in a museum. Absolutely. And you get to allow your imagination to play as well, which is never a bad thing either. Oh, I just, I wake up in the middle of the night with some crazy, sick, twisted ideas. And then I like wake up and I message them to myself so I don't forget. And then I go back to sleep. Hopefully, you know, you get too worked up with stuff too much in your head. You get up and you got to come downstairs and then you got to like write up a synopsis and stuff like that. And then you're like, you lost your night's sleep. So. Well, we only have about 90 seconds to go before we got to go to break at the bottom of the hour. Max Hawthorne is our guest. Kronos Rising is his book series, which can be found on Amazon. His latest book just came out just a few days ago. Kronos Rising Purgatory. Yeah. If you want to have someone scare the daylights out of you with creatures that will actually rip your face off, this is the guy who will do it. And he, and he means to do it. That's the thing. He means to do it. Yeah. 
Well, if you let me read the opening couple of pages from Get Backer at some point, we'll give them a sample So Absolutely. on the house. I can't believe it. You know, we do have to uh, get into uh, – because the last time we had you on, we really got into a lot of, you know, these giant sharks that scare the daylights out of me, man. Scare the daylights. And I brought you some fossils too. So. It's going to be one of those nights, isn't it? It's going to be one of those nights. This is – just terrible. Just terrible. You know, my audience knows my fear of the ocean. All right? They know my fear of the ocean. And and the fact that you are here to prove more, and we're seeing more uh, reports of these giant sharks that are starting to come out of the woodwork, so to speak, and play around. This is why we have our good friend Max the Hawthorne here to break it all down for us. Because somewhere out there, Megalodon is still swimming and hanging on out. We'll get into that later on in the show. Kronos Rising. You can head on over to Amazon right now. Go get his books. Max Hawthorne is our guest tonight. His latest book, once again, in the Kronos Rising series, is called Purgatory, Sun, Sand, and Slaughter. Well, if that doesn't attract you right there, I don't know what will. Spaced Out Radio with Max Hawthorne returns right after this. Stay tuned. All right, we're clear, buddy. Five minutes. I'll be back. All right. Hello, lovely Rin. How are you? Lunar Tina, the gorgeous Heather McIntyre in a bunker somewhere on the East Coast, growing her own tomatoes underground. Little Scotty Jensen. How you doing? The gorgeous Carla. Thank you for joining us. Who else is here? having a bad hair night tonight oh it's terrible just terrible alien critter some of us don't even have hair dave yeah well you don't know what it's like then to be me you don't know what it's like that's okay that is okay that is quite okay Let's see. Mm-hmm, 
Who else is here? Oh, there's lovely Lauren. Look at that. Lovely Lauren is here. Thank you, Terry Brown. Appreciate for your encouragement. There's Max. We'll unmute him. How you doing, buddy? I am good. Right on. Would you would you like an appearance from Olaf, by the way? Sure. I mean, you don't have to. I'm just asking who, who, who you. Is like, Ol- who is Olaf? Is that the big, cat? Big Siberian forest cats, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. we'd, yeah we'd like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, he can show up. That's That's very cool. I hope Spookles is watching. Oh, she'll watch it. Don't you worry. Filth, you got to turn down your music. I won't be able to pick him up. You're going to have the hand. Let's see here. Hold on. I'm on this thing. Who's your baby boo-boo? Hey, Von Patrick, how you doing? Yeah, Rin is like, let's see the kitty, man. Let's see the kitty. <laughs> Ruger Ridge, how you doing? Uh, we got about 35 seconds here. And uh, Vaughn Patrick, nice to have you back. Uh, thank you to Terry Brown, Thomas, Lala, Spacey Times 2 for the amazing Super Chats. Obi Flett, how you doing, brother? Good to uh, see you. And uh, the Super Chat is a wonderful way to support what we do on this show on a nightly basis. Oh, hey, Clam. Oh, hey, and uh, Chow Fun, welcome to the chat room. And we're going to get going here in about five seconds. Here we go. Second half hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate it. want to remind you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives at youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do us the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We continue on tonight with author, researcher, Max Hawthorne. His Kronos Rising series is up to six novels now. The sixth one just came out about a week ago called Kronos Rising Purgatory. You can find it all on Amazon. Max, welcome back. 
at your service, sir. All right. You're going to do something for us that you haven't done before. You're going to read us a little section of purgatory for us. I am. Should I bring the, introduce my editor first? Yeah, let's see the editor. I, our radio side is not going to be able to, to see the editor, but uh, we're going to uh, take a look here. Oh, at, okay. Look at the size so of that this, cat. Holy cow. Is, oh, uh, so this is Olaf, and he is uh, one of our Siberian forest cats. Say hi to everybody, Olaf. Who's your baby? Are you okay? Huh. Oh, Olaf's not feeling very talkative. I think he's he's camera shy. But anyway, so this 20-pound beast, he sleeps on my desk while I write. Him and his brother or under my desk, gnawing on my toes at the same time. So, a lot of people like him because he's just such a big fluffball. Yeah, holy cow. 20-pound oh. cat, that's massive. Yes, it is, you baby. Ow! Okay. Ow. And I got hair in my mouth. <laughs> Are you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm used to it. You know, he just was getting... He could hear you, obviously, in the mic and all that. So he was a little uh, off. That is hilarious. But, yeah. He's left the studio. Oh, yeah. He said, enough of this stuff. You know, I don't do this yeah. without getting paid. Ugh. I shouldn't have smooshed him. He was when he moved. He got me uh, there. Yeah. But anyway... So, yeah, he's great. I mean, it's really nice when you're writing because you have, like, you know, this purring thing next to you on the desk. You know, you're not alone. It's soothing. Did you want me to read and torture people now? Well, you know what? I I totally forgot during the break about this beetle. And it's now crawling (laughs) on my floor. I'm going to pick this. I'm going to pick this thing up. Go for it. If my cats were there, your beetle problem would be history. Seriously. I mean, Siberians eat birds in the wild. They snatch them out of the air. Oh, they would munch on that for sure. He wouldn't have a chance. Yep. Yeah, definitely. One time uh, I saw Mace jump up and catch a fly out of the air. Three-foot jump. Snatched him. You know, and when they eat a live bug, they have this satisfied look on their face as they're chewing it alive. Oh, I know. Legs are sticking out. Like, mm, 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 mm. It's, it's awful. I'm going to so, put this yeah. guy outside. So let's let's get you to start reading our uh, th- this little following you have, and I'm going to rescue this guy and put him outside here. That sounds cool. All right. Well, uh, so we got to pick up for the opening. We're going to do like the first three pages of Cronus Rising Purgatory. Um, just so everybody who's listening, um, if you're not familiar with the series, it's a huge spoiler. But the hero, the protagonist, his name is Jake Braddock. Um, is no longer a human being. He's like a seven foot tall, 400 pound, half man, half pliosaur type creature with very sharp talons and hypermuscular, et cetera. Jake was a, uh, a, a warrior, like a, an Olympic swordsman prior and a sheriff prior to all this stuff happening to him. So he has some, a lot of combat experience. And so now he's on this island there uh, with his nemesis, the man who murdered his wife and turned him into the monster he was and imprisoned him, etc. He ended up there on a submersible. When he got out and he was going after his nemesis, he realized all these hordes of these man-eating creatures are there, these reptilians. So that's what you're looking at. Okay, so just so there's a little setup, etc. for the thing. Okay, so I'm just going to take it from chapter one. Yeah, let's uh, do it. The creature just wouldn't die. 
Jake, Spra- Jake Braddock's broad chest rose and fell as he stalked toward it. A smoking Grayson Defense Technologies caused shotgun gripped in one clawed hand. He paused just beyond reach of its flailing hands and feet, his maned head cocked to one side. He had to admit he was impressed with the reptilian's tenacity. He pinned it to the trunk of a tall cypress with his claymore shortly after the melee began. By his estimate, sorry, lost my place. That was a good seven minutes ago. Yet despite hanging suspended in the air all that time with a Scottish broadsword rammed to its chest, it stubbornly refused to give up the ghost. Actually, that was selling the thing short. Even mortally wounded, it was still game. Feral eyes ablaze, it uttered a non-stop string of adder-like hisses as it alternated lunging at him and clawing at the aged blade that was slowly but surely sapping its life. When the battle began, Jake had no time to size up his adversaries. They'd come at him in a rush. Before things picked up again, and if the hyena-like howls echoing in the distance were any indication, his respite would be brief. He decided to take a moment to scrutinize one of his opponents. His cobalt eyes narrowed as he studied the enraged reptile. It wasn't quite as big as him, probably half a head shorter, but at six foot six and a solid three hundred pounds, it was no lightweight. Despite being derived from similar stock, its appearance was markedly different. It had an unnatural look to it, as if it had been born prematurely and wasn't quite complete. Yeah. Ugly didn't begin to describe it. He had to admit, as grotesque as he knew himself to be, when viewed up close, this creature made him feel downright handsome. The reptilian's head was hairless, with a flat face and a protruding Neanderthal-like brow ridge. Its dome-shaped cranium, cranium was comparatively small, suggesting a brain to match. Its jaw was broad, with a receding chin that undershot a large mouth filled to overflowing piranha-like teeth, not unlike his own. Its eyes interested him. They were the eyes of a madman. The whites were blood red, and there was no iris to speak of, just a dilated black pupil that glared at him with undisguised malice. Sorry, And overshadowing that animosity was a ravening hunger. Its physique was rangy and, although obviously powerful, had an unbalanced look to it. Its traps were enormous, while its shoulders were comparatively narrow. Its upper arms were muscular, but slim when compared to its massive forearms, both of which terminated in huge, gnarled hands tipped with the filthiest fingernails he'd ever seen. Spitting with rage, the reptilian attempted to lunge at him once more. It was so eager to get at the source of its ire, its thick-scaled feet were running in place a foot above the forest floor. Its furiously grasping fingers, topped with those festering nails, came within inches of his face, and it continued to hiss at him for all it was worth. Jake felt his shoulders tense at the obvious challenge. He drew a breath and hissed back at it, so loudly that he swore he saw a glimmer of confusion in its scarlet orbs. The mystery of why the creature continued to remain alive began to irk him. Did it have regenerative abilities comparable to his own, or perhaps better? He turned toward Eric Grayson and threw him an interrogatory look. The battered CEO gave no sign of noticing. He remained where he'd been since the battle began, in a fetal position with his back to a nearby tree, 
hugging his enigmatic metal briefcase as if his life depended on it. Jake cocked a scaly brow. Perhaps it did. All of a sudden, it occurred to the former Olympian that the resiliency of Grayson's creation, Natalia Draganova was undoubtedly right, they were all cast-offs from his experiments, was simply a matter of physics. The eight others that he'd beheaded, cut in two, or shot in the face, had all perished on the spot. All that is except the one he disemboweled. That one had been crawling over its own colon when he'd stomped its, its head the same way he had that murderous mercenary back in Tartarus. A quick glance at the crimson rivulets falling from his antique blade to the rainforest floor confirmed Jake's suspicions. His claymore had, indeed, pierced the big reptilian's heart. But by pinning to it to a tree, the blade was also plugging its wound. Which meant that to finish it off, all he had to do was be a good little Dutch boy and take his finger out of its metaphorical dyke. Jake's own red-rimmed eyes met his foes unblinkingly as he gripped the Scottish sword's handle. Then he wordlessly drew it free. There was a wet shucking sound, and the creature's feet hit the ground with a thud. For a few seconds it remained where it was, hunched over and struggling to gain its bearings. He waited for it to fall down and die, but instead it snarled and stubbornly sprang to attack. To Jake's surprise, its target wasn't him. It was Grayson. His aged nemesis uttered a high-pitched bleat as he saw one of his Frankensteinian creations coming for him with murder in its eye. It was less than a yard away when Jake sprang forward and lopped off its head. Should I keep going? Yeah, I'm, I'm right into this right now, man. Okay. The reptilian's body crashed to the ground, but its severed head continued on. Rolling eyes over occipital. I loved coming up with that, by the way. It landed right between Grayson's legs, its foaming jaws snapping at his crotch. The terrified scientist shuffled backwards like a frightened crab, a series of mewling noises spewing from his bloodied mouth. Jake afforded him a scornful look, then turned to inspect his weapons. He looked the still-warm GDT-12 gauge over, checked the settings for its motion-sensing targeting sensors, then removed the six backup shells from its ADCAP stock side saddle and started inserting them into its 20-round drum magazine with a series of short, snapping sounds. As he did, he did some quick calculating. He'd used six slugs during the initial skirmish, which meant he had 20 remaining in that cause, and another 20 plus 6 in the one hanging virgin across his broad back. He had no idea how many reptilians currently infested Diablo, but based on Dragonova's description, he figured there were many. Too many. Jake put his misgivings temporarily on hold as he espied a football-sized land snail creeping across a nearby log. He felt the corners of his mouth threaten to curl up. The dark-colored gastropod reminded him of one of those deep-sea volcano snails he and Amara once saw on the Discovery Channel. Their heavy, heat-resistant shells were reportedly as hard as iron, and their normally soft bodies covered with a protective layer of black chitinous scales that was almost as durable. All of a sudden, the big snail stopped. Its body withdrew inside its shell like the legs of a frightened tortoise, leaving a hardened end flap blocking its mobile home's entrance. Intentionally or no, it rolled off the log. Plopping down onto the leaf-strewn forest floor, it lay there motionless, for all intents and purposes, an inedible rock. Take a look at your deck. 
The weather-worn wood, scuffs, and general neglect are all remnants of a previous owner. Well, this is your deck now, so let's turn it into a deck that truly feels yours with Bear Premium Stain, the number one rated stain, according to a leading independent consumer publication. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. As he felt a series of vibrations shimmy through the ground beneath his feet, Jake found himself aligning with the frightened mollusk. Their mutual enemy was closing. Retreating back to the beast remora would be a wise move. Beside the shelter its armored hull would provide, the assorted weapons and ammo stores in the submersible's well-stocked armory would serve him well. His head snapped up as he heard the creature's hunting calls resounding from the direction of the nearby beach. That's assuming we can get there. By we, that included Grayson. More? Or is that enough? I really don't care. I'm going as long as you dude, want, I but am, I don't want to. I have lost you know. in your in your trance right now. You got me. You got me right I, now. I'll do like one more page. One, I don't want one, you know. One I more, you want to talk monsters? Yeah, yeah, a short one. One more page okay. here. Okay, by we that included Grayson. When the first hunting party had come at them, Jake found himself torn, realizing that bipedal saurians had once been human. He was loath to kill them on sight. He tried communicating, speaking, hissing, growling. He'd even thrown a couple of codas their way. Nothing worked. Their attackers could not be reasoned with. At that point, he'd been forced to make a decision. From a mobility standpoint, he was better off on his own. He could have left Grayson to be gutted like a fish and relished it from afar. It was an attractive option, and he'd given it serious thought. For the people the bastard ruthlessly experimented on, then dumped in this primal prison, it would have been the mother of all karmic endings. Many would have considered it justice served, but Jake was e pluribus unum. When it came to Eric Grayson, a quick death would not suffice. His crimes against humanity required more, much more. He needed to suffer long and horribly before the end came, and when he did, it needed to be by Jake's hand. And we will pause for station identification. Holy cow. I am just enthralled by this, my friend. Enth- thank you. Enthralled. And thank you for uh, sharing that with our audience here on Space Out Radio. Max Hawthorne reading from his latest book of the Kronos Rising series, which can be found on Amazon. Kronos Rising purgatory you definitely want to get this a book and this collection max you know for you i mean having to build up the emotion the strength the fright the fear the anger in a character like that how do you do that well it has a lot more impact on people that have read the previous books because a lot of readers out there like your your listeners um you know they're coming in with no background if you've read the previous books it has a lot more to it there's a lot more emotions involved because you've been through this character's struggles and suffering and loss and you know what a monster the person that's with him is so um the trick here is you're trying to do it for people like that are your regular readers as well as people coming in fresh you got to try and find a happy medium where you can sort of instill all that but i don't know it just comes naturally It, it really does Good for you. Good for you, my friend. What has been the reaction from your reading audience regarding the Kronos, Vir- uh, Kronos Rising series? Uh, well, I mean, they 
keep me employed, so I guess they must be happy. <laughs> you know, I, I think. I mean, anything I do, I try and do well. When I wrote Monsters Marine Mysteries, where I was, you know, investigating marine cryptids and other creatures like that, other sightings, my own stuff, etc. Um, now, I, I was very flattered by some of the reviews people said because they said there's two types of. Um, several people said this in reviews of cryptid books out there. There's ones where people wholeheartedly just like, yeah, this is it. This is real. And you've got to believe it. And there's another type apparently, and I've never read in these books where it's very clinical and they just throw data out there. And it's kind of like, like, uh, like sensory overload. To me, they liked it, I guess, because as a novelist, I wrote the book as a novelist and a researcher. So I gave the information, but I kept an open mind you know, in terms of what was possible, what could be, what might be, what I thought, etc. And I also told the stories with an exciting novelist flair, add some humor to it, things of that. So you're never bored, you know. But it's different when you're writing a novel where you're, like you said, drawing you into the story. You're there. You're on this prehistoric place. You've got hundreds of these man-eating things coming to get you. And you're this guy, and you're this powerful warrior that's half pliosaur, et cetera. But even you're not invincible, and these things are on their way. What are you going to do? Are you going to leave this your worst enemy to die? Are you going to save him so that you can kill him later? You know, like, how's that? It's the, the whole setup kind of puts the character in this trap, and he's trying to fight his way out of that trap. There's an emotional trap. There's a physical trap. The, the whole thing just comes at you. I, I hear you there. I, I really do hear you there. And we got five minutes to go before we got to go to break at the top of the hour. Max Hawthorne is our guest tonight on Spaced Out Radio. Now, I know you I know you don't want to ever give out, you know, the whole subject of the book and, and the ending of it, you know, to ruin it for anybody. But your characters there, I mean – Considering that this is quite a violent series, how do they end uh-huh. up surviving, man? Because in the end, there has to be the protagonist. Well, you know, there's a very high death count, as any reader will tell you, um, in my books. And very few people are safe. I mean, main characters, like, you know, there's like a Red Wedding thing going on. There's been a lot of memes about me killing people's favorite characters. Okay. And I've been, I've had people get very angry at me, like readers. Uh, there was one primary character, my favorite character, who died in Cronus Rising Kraken 2, I think it was. And people were very upset with me. My female readers were upset with me because they loved this guy. He was a great guy. I mean, like, you know, like a man's man and, and, and gentleman and, everything else like that but um and so my i had multiple male readers say like they were like i was so furious at you like they were saying talking about it on social media like when that happened i had tears in my eyes another guy was like yeah right i was crying too and i was like oh my god and then one guy goes i threw the book across the room and left it lying there for three months i could not pick it up uh, for three full months, I, went, I was that angry and upset with you. He goes, I stopped following you on social media for three months, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I'm, I'm so sorry. What can I do to make it up to you? <laughs> you know you have impact when. Yeah. I mean, guys don't usually say, I was crying, you know, on social media. We're too macho for that, you know. So when multiple guys are saying they were in tears because you killed their favorite character, that does carry out some weight. My goodness. My goodness. 
You know, the only book I have never, ever finished is Whitley Strieber's Communion. That's the only one I've never finished. And I've never started it, so you got and, me beat. Well, it, it's about alien abduction and his mm-hmm. personal experience with alien abduction. And I had this was 1999. My daughter was about four or five months old at the time. And mm-hmm. I'm reading this book. And it got to this part where he had been abducted by aliens and he's sitting on the spaceship and he looks to his side and his child is sitting right beside him. And the, and it's, according to Whitley, it's a true story. But for me, here I am holding my daughter of five months old and, and I'm playing this book in my head, this picture in my head. Because when I read and get into a book, man... I don't see the words. I see a movie being played. And I you know, I know what the characters look like and how they dress and act and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it scared me so much seeing his kid. I closed that book because I never wanted to see ha- that happen uh, between my daughter and myself. I closed the book. It is still 23 years later sitting in a box of books. With you know, Everybody has that one box of books that you never unpack and shelf. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That's where it is right now. That's where it is. Well, he struck a chord with you. You know, it, it hit too close to home, and you know that's that's it happens. You know, so I hear you. I don't. Yeah, I totally hear you, my friend. Totally hear. By you. By the way, I really you you said part of it before. Uh, the, the tagline on the cover of of uh, Purgatory was it Sun, Sand, and Slaughter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you read the rest of it, though? Because I love that line. I got it right here. Sun, sand, and slaughter. Book your timeshare now. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it really, you see, it applies to Jake's situation so badly. Because when he first got there, he thought, like, you know, this was a place where he could, you know, escape without ending up in a circus or something like that. And, but, you know... So it's like very sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek, book your timeshare now, like, you know, hell on earth coming at you and stuff like that. Like, I don't, you know, I thought it was funny. I came up with that myself. Well, you know what? We're going to have a good time with you in hour number two as well because we are going to be uh, going into some monster talk. I know you love monsters. I love monsters. And you know what? We're almost there. Uh, in getting to the point of having some real scary times here for old Davey. Because I know that in the next hour, Megalodon is going to come up. These giant sharks that are these these super sharks that I had never heard of these super sharks until the last time Max was on. He started talking about these super great whites that are out there ripping apart whales, ripping apart 20-foot great whites. We're getting into them next on Spaced Out Radio. If you love the ocean, you won't after this next hour. How about that? Spaced Out Radio continues with hour number two and guest Max Hawthorne next. Yeah, that's the impact you've had on me, man. It's been like a year and a half since we had you on and all I look up now on YouTube is Super Sharks. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I got some nice stuff for you today. Some fossils, different things like that. So, nice. Uh, yeah. 
Nice. Definitely. Uh, we should talk about like, you know, that press release they did, you know, talking about how the Megalon might have actually been bigger than they think. All right. So. We got uh, about five and a half minutes. I'm just going to step away for a minute. Me too.
Dirty Filth, working his magic. Jigsaw, welcome to Spaced Out Radio in the chat room. Pin myself right. Oh, why did it do that? Where'd it go? Let's go that way. There we go. Hey, Max. Cable Guy Matt is here. Remember, people, if you hit up Cable Guy Matt, you could get your free piece of autographed coaxial cable courtesy of Cable Guy Matt. You cannot buy these in stores. Or you could go to our shop on our website and pick up your Cable Guy Matt t-shirt. Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah. Cable Guy Matt. Oh, look at that. Cable Guy Matt ordered his custom t-shirt. Yep. Carlito, how you doing, man? Welcome back. All right, we've got about 45 seconds before we're going to run here. Dirty Filth is painting up some oceanic picture here. Yeah. That name kills me. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. It was good to see you today, Cable Guy, Matt. Thanks for stopping in. Mm-hmm. Anybody else joining us here? I want to say a big thank you to Terry, Thomas, Lala, Spacey Times 2 for the amazing super chats. We really appreciate the love. Thank you to everybody who's given us a thumbs up already. If you haven't yet, please do. It helps us with the algorithms. And here we go with hour number two. Hi, Tony. How you doing? You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Hour number two of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America and digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Zingaro. Zingaro is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as a clam sets a password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot. Read Shirky Poo's Newswire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We continue on tonight with author Max Hawthorne. His book series, Kronos Rising, can be found on Amazon. Number six just came out, which is Kronos Rising, Purgatory, Sun, Sand, and Slaughter. Book your timeshare now. Yeah. (laughs) Max loves that line. I love it, buddy. I love it. Oh, my God. Oh, man. All right. Now, the last time you were on, we were talking sea monsters. And, and you know, my booking team loves bugging the daylights out of me about my fear 
my audience does too about my fear of the ocean because there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that could kill you that wants to eat you that just doesn't care that you're human and that you're supposed to be at the top of the food chain no 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 just anything in the ocean it's just not good you know and for you you have been studying the likes of whether or not megalodon is still around the super great whites that are allegedly out there that are running up between 25 and 35 feet long some at 40 i mean what's new in this section um well let's see uh we can touch on the the, the mega white shark theory first um when we did monsters and marine mysteries when i was writing it uh, there was a lot of research for the book and there's a whole chapter in there i encourage people to uh check out monsters and marine mysteries on mega sharks uh the kindle is a great version to get because the links are active so all the stuff that are anything it's cited etc you can go right to it through your kindle it, it saves you time you know is this accurate what's the details on that etc but um we got firm evidence first of undeniable in my opinion that great whites do exceed 25 feet it's not often but it happens and that came in the form of two um fresh bites on a humpback big humpback whale carcass that came ashore um and uh on briar island and those bites were both 27 inches wide uh one of them the shorter one in terms of height was 31 inches high and the one where the shark went full gape to try and really gouge out a chunk was 37 inches high but it was formed by the same fish both bites they were like one next to the other on top of each other um going by the most conservative formulas take a look at your deck the weather-worn wood scuffs and general neglect are all remnants of a previous owner well this is your deck now so let's turn it into a deck that truly feels yours with bare premium stain the number one rated stain according to a leading independent consumer publication at O'Reilly, we measure success in code releases that go out without a hitch. Careers grown, and that little nugget of sage advice that helps make the impossible suddenly possible. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. Out there, that indicated a 26-foot white shark. Other formulas from, uh, you know, Alaska branchologists suggested even 30 feet plus. But I was comfortable going conservatively with 26 feet. And that's pretty solid evidence, short of a, you know, a carcass or something like that. Those bites weren't put there by, you know, people and so forth and so on. Um, but there were bigger sharks that we looked at. There was the one that um, I, you, you were probably referring to that Discovery did a special one, where they were calling it um, Super Predator, like a 35-foot white shark in the kill zone or something like that. Yes. You know? And I got to talk to the photographer um, from the Center for uh, Whale Research in Australia who took those pictures. He sent me great high-def shots, including ones that weren't on the show. And I was able to look at them and crunch numbers, et cetera, on that. And conservatively, I figured that that shark ranged somewhere between, I think, it was 26 and 32 feet in length. I know that's a broad stretch, but that bite had changed as the whale aged and stuff like that. It had sort of like flattened out and changed shape so it's hard to get accurate an accurate you know, uh, calculation but it's still huge but the one that was like really shocking is the one that i coined the term the galapagos giant for it and that's one where uh, simon pierce the marine biologist who swims with whale sharks and they do sonograms on pregnant whale sharks while they're swimming with them imagine that you were like a 40-foot whale shark and you're 
doing a sonogram for the babies and stuff. But anyway, um, and he they had a 40-footer off of uh, the Galapagos, and it had a giant bite scar on its left flank that was four feet across, approximately. And that's confirmed by Simon. So this wound is healed, but it hasn't grown with the shark, like some people will say with the whale shark, meaning that's not how whale sharks heal their injuries. I have like on my website evidence of that, photos, and you'll see a whale shark bite from a white shark that's crisp and clean, and then 18 months later, it's all filled in. It doesn't grow with the whale shark. It doesn't work like that. Tissue fills in, the bite almost disappears. You can't even tell it's a bite after a while. This bite is shaped perfectly and has individual healed tooth grooves in it. So you know that this bite is probably a year, two years old at most. But the thing is, so you're talking about a giant, giant shark. And on that Discovery special, the super predator thing, once again, they had some marine biologists on there who were theorizing that sometimes white sharks, they experience what's called gigantism. They don't stop growing. And they might hit 35 or more feet. I crunched the numbers before I came on the show today. And going by, once again, the most conservative formulas available, a bite 48 inches wide implies a predatory shark a little over 42 feet in length, which is gigantic. That's good. Now, that's assuming it's a great white with a great white's, you know, mouth proportions, etc., which are different from a tiger sharks or a bull or something like that. So it's, it's impressive. Um, you know, such an animal is not going to be common, but I mean, there are species out there, which I gave examples in the book that they keep growing sometimes. You know, they don't, I'm sure it doesn't end well for them because a shark that size is going to be inherently slow and have a hard time feeding. It's going to be a scavenger most of the time. But there is evidence out there to support that white sharks occasionally mutate and become monster sharks. So. There's a one photo out there where you see, I believe it's a humpback whale that is swimming and it's got a giant chunk out right between the dorsal fin and the tail and you can still see the teeth marks in there how do we know that that shark didn't grow and expand that bite area that the shark didn't expand the bite area the whale well when the whale let's say it happened when the whale was not as big as it is now Mm -hmm. would would the scar not expand with well are we talking about the pygmy blue whale maybe that's that one. one I'm going to yeah, look it's for it. Because there's not a lot of them out there like that. So in the case, like I was saying, the wounds don't grow symmetrically with, like if, if you're a child, okay, like when I was a kid, okay, I stepped on a, uh, a rusty steel beer can that was popped open. And it had a hole in my, I had a hole in my foot that my little fist would have fit in. It was horrifying for a 10-year-old. But anyway, um, as I grew that scar didn't grow with me, it stayed the same size. See, my hand would no longer fit in it now because I'm an adult, okay? But in the case of that pygmy blue whale, the bite was on the top, the dorsal section of the peduncle in front of the flukes. And so, yes, that's exactly it right there. And, um, oh, my God, I can't think of the guy's name that did did the photos. I think his last name is Curtis. Curtis or Curtis Jenner or something like that, Um, which is, uh, I wish I had it handy. But anyway, so... That bite, you see where it's located there, okay, on the screen. That is where the whale's flukes are going to move up and down constantly, constantly. I mean, that's its main propulsion, its only propulsion, basically, okay? So on the show, when they did that, 
they were theorizing that the shark that attacked that whale, that that was just the tip of its mouth. You see how it's kind of flattened out? Yes. Okay. It's not as symmetrical like a semicircle, like a white shark bite would be fresh. Okay. So they figure that means the whole bite was much bigger. Okay. And the jaws were five or feet across or six feet across, etc. And when I was investigating it and doing my, you know, research and my calculations and crunchy numbers, etc., I personally disagreed with that. I felt that what had happened is that the bite did not grow, but as the animal was growing itself, the bite started to flatten. See? So it started off shaped like this, like a semicircle, and then it didn't, it didn't fill in. The whale kind of grew around it, and it flattened out. There's evidence when you look at it, and you measure it and stuff. And so that combined with that constant up and down motion caused that bite to change. So to compensate for that, I took a white shark's real bite shape, and I overlaid it there and then figured out how the bite was, how big it was originally. And that's why I was able to come up with something. I think it was 27 to 32 feet, if memory serves. But uh, so in that case, it's not that the bite grew, see, because if it had grown symmetrically, it would have gotten deeper also, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? But instead, it kind of stayed the depth, and then the ends of it kind of flattened out. So it creates the illusion of a much bigger bite. If you scale that out, that bite's supposed to be like four feet across, I think, one to 1.2 meters, something like that, 40-something inches. If you went full circle there, it would be six or seven feet across, which obviously is inaccurate. That's larger than the biggest megalodon's jaws would be, see? So, you know, the, the solution was basically that that bite kind of flattened out, but it still was caused by a giant shark, and it may have well have happened when that animal was a calf and it was saved by its mother i discussed all that in monsters marine mysteries so but yeah 27 to 32 feet is still one hell of a shark no kidding no kidding i mean the fact that you know that there are 30 27 to 32 foot sharks swimming around the ocean how come we're not seeing them as often as say we are a 15 footer or 18 footer but then again 20 footers are hard to find Exactly. I mean, how many 20-foot white sharks are out there? I only know of one that makes the news, Deep Blue. Yet for every 20-footer, there's got to be 118-footers and 1,015-footers and probably 5,010-footers. You see what I'm saying? Same thing with Nile crocodiles. We know they reach 20 feet at times, but if you look at there, the average size range for a male is like 10 to 14 feet, something like that. See? So, I mean, you're going to have, it, it's just a numbers game. Who has the genes to get to the maximum size? The food, who survives that long, isn't killed off at a younger age by long liners, by finning ships, by other sharks, by orcas, etc. So a 20-footer is a rare one. A 25-footer would be even rarer still. And the only evidence for that is actual bite. I wish I thought of it ahead of time. I could have brought the full color ones on here. You could have shown them up there. They're astonishing. You know, because in, like, in the book, they're in black and white. I put them on my uh, Monsters and Marine Mysteries Facebook page, that photo, so people can like see what the bite radius of a 26-foot great white looks like in color. 
Well, I, I want to ask you in regards to these mega sharks, where are they living? Is it warmer climate? Because we do see in certain areas like South Africa right now, even around Seal Island, which has always been a hotbed, that there are less great whites there because the killer whales are moving in. That's right. In fact, I believe when we had that rush of white sharks off the West Coast a while back, I think that was the result of, what do they call those guys, port and starboard are their names, the big bulls, the two of them? Because they have fins that you know lean one way or the other, one to port, one to starboard. But uh, I thought that was really cool, whoever came up with that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a known fact when killer whales start killing and eating white sharks, every white shark in the vicinity heads to Hawaii or runs for their lives. They dive deep, deep down like 1,500 feet where orcas can't go, and they get out of dodge. They can sense it, whether they sense it, smell it, hear it, whatever it is. They know that they're natural predators in the area, and they flee. And that pushed other white sharks, and they all ended up, a lot of them, on the West Coast, fleeing all the way from there. That, that big of an impact, if you think about it. So, But, uh, I mean, the, uh, the ones that we I researched, the two biggest ones were from, I think, Australia and the Galapagos which are both you know, warm regions, I guess you'd say. But, uh, I mean, an animal like that is going to be hard to find in a, millions and millions of cubic miles of ocean. So it's, it's unlikely. And if it dies, they don't float. You know, no, they don't they, swim bladder. They sink. So they go to the, yeah, they go to the bottom and they get scavenged and they're gone. Have you, That's just the way it, have you ever seen any video footage or photographs outside of that that pygmy blue whale with the chunk mm-hmm. out of the back that really mm-hmm. sets the stage for for a 30 to 40 foot long great white shark and the galapagos the whale shark also has the bite don't forget that one so you've got those two right there but yeah there's i have a photo which i can't publish because i don't remember who sent it to me, and I don't know who has the copyright. But I have a photo in my archives of a couple of humpback whales frolicking on the surface. And uh, it's frustrating because I can't tell how big they are, etc. But one of them has a bite on its tail, on one of its flukes, which is fairly fresh. You can see chunks of flesh, notches from individual teeth, and shreds of meat on it on the fluke and the bite is ginormous it's like three quarters the width of one fluke and a humpback whale adult has flukes that are like 12 feet across so if this is an adult humpback you're talking about a bite that could be five feet or more across which is immense if it's a calf it would still be big you know not as big but yeah, like that shows you Here, right there. Here's the picture for our radio audience. We're showing a picture on our YouTube and Twitch right now regarding a a whale shark that pretty much has its its top dorsal fin bit off and a chunk out of its side. So tell us about this, Max. This is from your website, chronosrising.com. Okay, so this shows – I don't remember the size of this whale shark. I think it was about a 20-footer, if memory serves. It's probably on there somewhere. But this shark was attacked by presumably either a tiger or a great white. It took two chunks out of it, tried to take it down. The second strike, um, the one that's on the flank there, they went ended up hitting the caudal keel. Whale sharks have what I call a crumple zone that helps protect them 
from predators, or is a thick area, thick skin and fibrous tissue that supports their tail. And it doesn't affect the muscles. So when that attacker bit there, it really didn't disable the whale shark, which it was hoping to do. See, that was its goal. You know, you cripple him, he can't swim, and then he suffocates, and then you eat him. Okay? So they tried. It didn't work. But that same whale shark, I think it's like 16 months later or something like that, you can see that wound on the flank is almost filled in. There's no more bite shape to it. You see the chunks, top and bottom, they're missing there or anything like that. There's no tooth grooves. There's no anything. So the bite doesn't grow with the shark, especially these guys who are rapid healers. Them and manta rays can regenerate like Wolverine from the X-Men. I mean, they're amazing. You see a manta ray with a giant bite, like a Pac-Man attack out of its one of its wings. And then a year later, it's completely filled in. It's astonishing. We should figure out how they do that and, and apply it to people. So you know? this bite on this dorsal fin, which mm-hmm. is 80% gone. Right. It's still gone. It's not growing back. It just filled in, smoothed out, etc. No, I understand so, that. But, but what are yeah. the measurements on that bite? I wouldn't know. I'd have to really take the photo. I'd have to like tape it out on the screen or something like that and get it. But it wouldn't be a huge shark. It could be like a 15-foot tiger or white shark, something like that. I don't think it would be anything spectacular. It's not like that, like I said, the Galapagos giant with that thing. I mean, my God. There's a photo of Simon swimming next to this shark, and the bite is like three-quarters as big as him. It's jarring to think that – and you're in the water, and you're thinking, if I was that me, I'd be looking at that bite saying, Wow. Something did this, you know, is it around here somewhere? Like, you know, like, I don't want to be here if it is, you know, that kind of thing. What about the giant shark that's alleged to be a megalodon that is swimming in the Baja Peninsula? I believe they call it the Black Demon. I believe that turned out to be a promotional... I don't want to say a hoax, but it was something that was made up for the uh, that Discovery Channel mockumentary, you know, about Megalon still being alive. There was a lot of stuff that was um, doctored and created for that documentary, which was at the, in the fine print. They say it's like a kind of like a theatrical version or whatever. But uh, like they took photo a photo of a U boat from World War II, and they added the, a shark fin and tail to make it look like there was a hundred foot shark out there or something, et cetera. You know, a lot of that stuff is, it's like, you know, entertainment. Okay. So we shouldn't really put any stock into that. There was a, well, go ahead. Well, they came out and said that the stuff was, you know, it was uncovered that, that it was done for that purpose. So just like the mermaid one, remember they had the animated mermaid man in the net with the kid's cell phone and all that. And the CGI was kind of like telltale where he like lunges at the child on the beach Right. Yeah. Like, they had me going, like, with the whole, with the cave paintings and all this stuff. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, look at this. Until that was, like, wait a minute, that looks a little CGI to me. And I looked at the fine print and it said, like, you know, this is an actual, like, recreation of an imagined thing or something like that. I forget the, the details. So, sorry. Amazing. I, there, I say it like it is. There was a video from... I believe, oh, about five, six years ago, where there was a a camera on like a crab cage 
or something. And this giant shark, I don't know if it was a great six white gold. or a green. Or a, was oh, it's, a, it's a six-gill shark, yeah. It was. How, how yeah. big do those get? Um, I believe that one is probably estimated to be 25 or 30 feet. I don't remember the exact number. Um, when I first saw it, I was like, my God, this thing could be 50 or 60 feet long because I had Googled how big these crab cages are, and there's like two meters. And based on that, the thing seemed immense. But when I looked into it further and further and tried to like pinpoint what exactly that, that trap was, that bait, it was more like a one-meter trap, not two meters. And... Uh, it's not something that fell off a, a crab boat, let's say. And so the shark was probably in, around 30 feet long, which is immense. I mean, it's a huge animal. But, you know, you can tell it's big when you see its gills ripple and stuff like that. It has so much mass to it. You know, they lurk down there in the abyss. They're like the big cleanup crew. And when whales die, they gnaw them, you know, and they just munch away. Whale fall, that's what it's called. You know, and a whale carcass bloats up, and then eventually right. the gases ooze out, and then it sinks into the abyss. And then it's a whole ecosystem or a whole food web, all that one carcass lasts years. Incredible. It's sort of, sort of stages, yes. Incredible. So do you believe there are megalodon-like sharks still living in the ocean, considering we don't have a clue of what is going on in the ocean. I believe that there is evidence that I've, you know, gotten my hands on, like I said, it's in the book, um, that there appear to there appears to be let's see, let's see yeah, let me use the academic term. Well, you know what, hold that answer because I wasn't watching okay. my clock. I was too into the conversation. Is there Megalodon out there? Max Hawthorne, author of Kronos Rising, the series, answers it next on Spaced Out Radio. All right, we are clear, and we'll bring Dirty Filth up here. There you go, Dirty. It's your show now, buddy. We got five minutes, Max. I'll be back. All right, buddy. I'm going to go pet the cat. You go. At the cat for me too. And Spookles. Well, we got a nice cat story to lead off the news tonight. What do you say there, uh, Gary Gnu, a.k.a. Dirty Filth? Had to unmute myself, sweating in here, Dave. What are you doing? Uh, I'm dreaming of my new lawnmower right now. Excellent. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't don't know any lawnmower dealers that can help you out, but... Mm. That's okay. That's all right. Well, I know plenty of used car salesmen. Mm, Don't we all? Don't we all? 
Let's see here. When a, I'm uh, just quickly getting some news here for Shirky Poo's news. Uh, let's see here. What kind of news are you getting? Can you give us a sneak peek? No. Why not? Because I'm just not... you and I here, Dave. There's nobody else that can hear not us. That guy. Not that guy. We live in a world focused on ROI, KPIs, and EBITDA. At O'Reilly, we measure success a little bit differently. We measure it in bugs conquered, code releases that go out without a hitch, and that little nugget of sage advice that helps make the impossible suddenly possible. We see success every day in our 2.5 million members on the O'Reilly Learning Platform. It's why over 60% of the Fortune 100, along with thousands of smart mid-sized companies and scrappy startups, count on O'Reilly to help their teams learn the tools and technologies that drive real innovation. It's your people who create success. Invest in them, and the rest of the numbers fall into place. Someone has to build the future. At O'Reilly, we think it can be you. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform today at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. At O'Reilly, we measure success in code releases that go out without a hitch, careers grown, and that little nugget of sage advice that helps make the impossible suddenly possible. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. We get the news ready. He's getting the news ready. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, did you bring your rubber ducky? I brought mine. No, I didn't bring mine. Oh, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. You know what? That's what Max should do is, like, make rubber duckies of his characters. Supermax. Supermax. Supermax wears a cape, people. <laughs> Only on alternate Fridays. <laughs> oh, God. Mm-hmm. You know, believe it or not, though, I have saved many people's lives. And I kid you not. As in physically save people's lives. Really? Oh, yeah. Yep. Be amazed the things that happen. You find yourself thrust into a situation. And I'm not one of these people that stands by gawking and lets bad things happen to people. You know? Only only once for me. Only once for me. I uh, was fishing uh, beside an old guy uh, who mm-hmm. fe- who fell into the river. My buddy and I grabbed him before he started heading down. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah. Everybody's got to do their part. 
And then no. we've, and the best part about it, we found his watch in the river. Hi, Blues oh. and G. How you doing? Yeah, he'd had that watch for like decades. It fell off his wrist when he fell in. Super Knower, how you doing? All right, Max, we've got about uh, 40 seconds. And then when we get to the break at the top of the hour, just stick around until I uh, can say goodnight to you properly, buddy. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for being here again, brother. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so if you wanted to, to touch on uh, like that, you know, Megalodon sizing thing, I think that might be good for your readers because I think they one, like the one, idea. One second here, buddy. Start... Here we come. One sec, please. We pass the halfway point of Space Down Radio tonight. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. Want to remind you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives at youtube.com forward slash Space Down Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram, at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok, at Spaced Out Radio. We continue on tonight with Max Hawthorne, author of a great series of books called Kronos Rising. His latest one just came out a week ago to make it six in the volume now. Max, welcome back. Thanks, big guy. It is an honor and a privilege. Now, right before the break, I asked you a question about Megalodon, whether or not you feel Megalodon could still exist in the oceans today, even though by all intents and purposes, we believe it's been extinct for over 2 million years. What's your thoughts? Um, now they, they changed the date now. It appears it's 3.6 million since it officially went extinct. Uh, I am of the opinion that, based on the evidence that I've seen collected, etc., that the evidence strongly suggests, as the academia like to say, that there is a very, very large macro predatory shark out there that could be possibly pushing 40 feet in length. Um, do I think it's a megalodon? I don't, based on the evidence I've seen, including the tooth grooves in that whale shark, which are too narrow, in my opinion, to be caused by megalodon teeth. I think it's either a mutated white shark like you know, one that suffered from gigantism or or several of them. Or it could be there is another shark out there. I mean, it's highly unlikely, but called uh, Otodus chubutensis, which was Megalodon's direct ancestor and shared the seas with it for many millions of years. It wasn't quite as big. It topped out at around 40 feet. And it had teeth much more like a giant great white than the Megalodon's teeth, which are morphologically different let's say but uh so if there was an extinct shark out there still alive uh that would probably be my safe bet but the odds are it's just a not just i mean 
a 35 or 40 foot gray white would not be just for anything, but I, I think that's more likely. But, you know, I don't know everything, and the ocean is a vast, vast place. So Now, Megalodon used to really be seen and found, not seen because there's no photos of it, but back in the day mm-hmm. it was really found, and the fossils of teeth records and jawbones around the southeastern United States, South Carolina, mm-hmm. North Carolina, Florida, Florida, in that mm-hmm. area. You know, what made that area so nice, you know, going back millions of years ago for Megalodon? Uh, well, the popular theory is, and I share that theory because I have fossils to back it up, is that it was a nursery for the sharks. Um, they, like many species, when I fish in Florida, for example, Goliath grouper are this huge bony fish that lives out on the reef and sometimes can be six, eight hundred, maybe even a thousand pounds. They're top predators. They even eat sharks sometimes. But when they're born, they live in the mangroves in the shallows where they're protected from larger predators out in the sea. And they stay there until they reach a certain size. And then they migrate out into the reefs where they can contend with larger predators, sharks, etc. So it's probably a situation like that where you have these um, mother sharks coming in to birth their pups in shallower, warmer regions, coastal waters, which are plenty of game. And the sharks would hang out in that area, so to speak, and stay there and grow and feed until they got large enough that they could make their way out into the open sea and they could survive. Because you got to remember, there's not just Megalon out there. Chubutensis was out there also. There are other large predatory sharks back there, giant prehistoric mako sharks, prehistoric great whites, etc. Everything wants to eat something. See? So it probably would have been much safer for a Megalon pup, which is, I think, around two meters long at birth is the current estimate. At first they said eight to ten feet. Now it's six and a half. I don't know how that's happening. Seems a little, since white sharks when they're born could be five feet long, it seems six and a half seems a little small to me, but you know, whatever the case, but it would be behoove them to stay in warmer, shallower waters with plenty of food where they were safer until they were 15 or 20 feet long and maybe safer to go out into the open sea, in my opinion. And the fossils do tend to bear that through. But, uh, but the biggest are, sharks they, are ahead, the ones so that came there to give birth. So, I'm sorry. So my, my estimate is, and I watch a lot, you know, because – my son has always had an interest in, in sharks, like Megalodon, like any little boy would. You know, Megalodon, uh, put it this way, he knew how to pronounce Donkleosteus way before I even knew how to spell it. You know, and and I look at this in his interest, and, you know, I'm, I'm really debating this, you know, this summer. Where, where should I take him? And I was thinking, you know what, I may take him to South Carolina to try and dig up some Megalodon teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, or or North Carolina. I think South Carolina has a higher populace of findings there. Don't get me wrong. Uh, maybe you can help me out on that. But you know, I'm I'm thinking five, six, seven inch teeth, man, mm-hmm. and hundreds of them in one jaw. That could uh-huh. snap the spine out of almost anything at that point in time, could it not? Yeah. Yes, it could. Um, I mean, I put out a uh, a few years back a very controversial theory that the megalodon shark went through a period of transition as it grew where it was a primary hunter and an opportunistic scavenger when it was younger. And when it got to a certain point where it was so 
large and cumbersome and slower, I'm sorry to say, where it became a primary scavenger and an opportunistic predator as an adult, meaning most of its food was obtained from scavenging whale carcasses, appropriating them from other sharks, things of that nature. But uh, I did release, uh, had an interview recently, the press release on it, where I showed that evidence suggesting that the shark was actually bigger than a lot of people think. Should I get into that? Or? Yeah, let's get into it for sure. All right. So historically speaking, um, it's been hard to gauge the size of the shark. Uh, previously, like a, a paleontologist named Shimada put out what I think was a fairly accurate assessment where the biggest sharks got to be around 50 feet in length. And that sort of bears out if you look at like, uh, for example, like this is a three inch white shark tooth. Okay, and this came from a shark that was probably 20, 21 feet long. Now you have here this replica of a six inch megalodon tooth. It seems gigantic, but in reality, it's twice, see, the size. So a three inch tooth indicating a 20 foot shark does not mean a six inch tooth indicates a 60 foot shark. It doesn't make sense mathematically. So this shark was probably around 40-something feet long, low 40s, whatever, that kind of thing. But uh, so the thing is, though, not all huge teeth are found or lost, etc., by the shark when it was feeding. And for every, just like we talked about in terms of white sharks, for every 20-footer, there's probably thousands of 10-footers. You see what I'm saying? So the same thing applied to Megalon, which is why six-inch teeth are very rare. And seven-inch teeth are a thousand times rarer. I mean, you get a pristine seven-inch tooth, you can buy a house if you find the right buyer. That's the truth. That's that's the way it is. Okay. So what I did was I discovered, though, I started looking at complete megalodon jaws. And before that, there were none out there. Now there are two complete sets. And so with that, you have to realize that the teeth are not all the same in the jaws. You have these upper primary teeth that are designed for cracking through bones and stuff like that. And then the teeth get smaller as they go down and they change structure as they move with the smallest teeth being close to where the hinge point is of the jaw. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. Okay. So, cause otherwise the shark couldn't close its mouth to be biting itself, et cetera. It's just the way it is. Um, so like I looked at complete sets of jaws, complete sets of teeth, et cetera. And I discovered that I had um, teeth in my collection that, when I was able to compare them to the measurements of some of the jaws out there, indicated that the larger teeth in the jaw of that same shark were much, much bigger than anything known. And I, this is getting a little confusing, but um, so there's a specimen out there, I'm going to pull it up right now, called CB11, which is a complete megalodon shark teeth set of 46 specimens. And the largest teeth in that jaw which is an upper left tooth and the set dead center is 146 millimeters, which is about five and 0.75 inches if memory serves in length, which is a big tooth. Okay. It's not quite six inches, but it's a very, very large fish. That same jaw. Okay. If you take like the, some of the teeth I'm talking about are much, much smaller. So I discovered that and I'm going to just show it to you. Okay. So this, shark tooth here okay now this doesn't look like a giant megalodon tooth okay but this is one of the tiniest teeth in the jaw this is an lr9 
most likely lower right number nine. Okay. How can you tell if it's, it's lower a, right or upper right? Uh, it's based on the actual teeth of the known specimens in the complete jaw. Okay. So you compare them to the other teeth, et cetera. And then me, since I take no chances, I went to like Seth Sorensen, who's the chief paleontologist from Fossil Shack, and I double checked my findings with him and he confirmed everything. So this is either a number nine and LR9 or LR10. Okay. Um, we went with nine to be conservative. Okay. It's a great specimen. And if you can see it, I don't know if you can, if I move it close enough, is that in focus? Yes. Over here, you see those jagged marks there? Yeah. So Can you for, see for our radio I, audience this, on one side of the tooth, there's a bunch of jagged areas going up towards the point of the canine type tooth. Right. Now, when this was lost, which is by Florida, by the way, this got ground up by the shark as it was feeding. Chomp, chomp, chomp. So it chewed its own tooth, and those hack marks bop, 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 are where other teeth in the jaw were munching down on this actual tooth. So the point is, is that the if I go back to the specimen there, this tooth in the jaw there was only 74 millimeters, which is under 3 inches, okay, for that, if it's an LR9. And based on the size of this tooth and scaling up to it, it's like a, gosh, da, 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 da. Hold on, I have it in the, the thing right here. I apologize. So this tooth is 1.42 times as high and 1.54 times as wide as the tooth in CB11. That means that if we scale up, and assuming that the teeth are comparatively, you know, grow comparatively upward, it means that that shark's biggest teeth were anywhere from 8.16 inches to 8.85 inches in height. Okay. That depends on whether we're scaling up from height or by width. So either way, though, the shark that had this tooth, its upper jaw teeth were most likely 8 inches or more in height, which is a monster shark. Okay. Pure and simple. And we're able to do that because we have complete sets that we can work with. And just to show you, this is adorable, is the baby version that was sound in the exact same area. That doesn't mean this was necessarily its mother. I don't know if people can see that, but this is the baby shark and this is the adult. Okay. And this little guy here, this is the exact same tooth from the lower right side of the jaw is a little over an inch. And it means that the biggest tooth in that jaw was probably around 30 millimeters, which means that that shark was maybe around nine or 10 feet long. So still a baby if you know what I'm saying, living in that area. But this is like mama bear, okay, compare it. It's like freaky, if you think about it, found in the exact same spot. So now that the crazy part is, though, and I talked about this in the interview I did, is that we couldn't, like even Seth could not say for sure whether this was an LR9 or an LR10. The root sort of looks like a 10, but the crown sort of looks like a nine. So it's kind of like hard because when they grow, there are morphological changes to the teeth. So it's impossible to really say. But we're being conservative and saying that it's a nine, which still means the tooth was at least eight inches, the biggest tooth in that jaw. Are you with me? I'm hearing I'm you. Probably getting good. Okay. So now just on a whim, because I didn't want to do this before, I did some number crunching trying to figure out how big 
if this was a number 10, which is one of the smallest teeth in the lower jaw, almost the smallest one, if that was the case, okay, and I can't say that it is, but if it was, I did some number crunching, and it would mean that this tooth, the maximum tooth in the jaw, the biggest upper center teeth in the jaw, would have been 10.6 inches in height and almost 7 inches across the base. Okay, now I know that's crazy. So we're going to we're going to stay conservative and say that no, this is a 9. Okay? But, you know, the possibility is there. So that strongly suggests that there were megalon sharks out there that had teeth that exceeded 8 inches in slant height, which means that the species could have topped out at around 60 feet. My goodness. My yeah, goodness. Which is impressive. YJ Overlander is asking about the what is the biggest shark fossil that we have found to date? Is it the Megalodon jaws? Um, confused. Does he mean teeth? Well, or... because sharks don't have fossils, they, they except for the mouth. Right. The cartilage, the stuff you see in the, the jaws is reconstructed. So usually only the teeth and sometimes vertebrae sometimes are, are preserved. And that's very rare. But usually it's only the, the calcium and the actual mm-hmm. teeth that preserves. The cartilage just rots away and disappears. I mean, if you find a dead shark, you know, beat like a, one of my guys uh, found a basking shark or no, well, I did. And he took a knife and he was able to slice through the vertebrae like it was hard cheese, you know, and that's fresh. So it rots away. The cartilage usually doesn't preserve. So the, the only question would be like the, the, teeth question i think the biggest teeth they found so far are 7.3 inches 7.4 something like that so this and they're so rare i think there's like two or three in the world maybe so the point is is that if there was a mama out there that had eight or eight and a half inch teeth you know she was such a rare beast that her losing this tooth which is the only one that was found was a rare thing in and of itself and we don't have any of the giant ones that she would have possibly lost so, Which could be anywhere buried hundreds of feet deep in the ocean by now. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I'm sure it'll come to surface, pun intended. But it was fascinating because I have like three or four different giant posterior teeth. That's what they're called, the ones further back in the jaw. And crunching the numbers, I was able to really indicate that there were some monster sharks out there. They were all breeding females, and they were all traveling into that those areas around the warm water parts you were talking about, like the Carolinas and Florida and stuff like that. Obviously, they were there to eat, but also to breed. And they may have given birth first and then fed, probably, but maybe not. I don't know what their dietary preferences were while they're gestating and all that. James is asking, could it be possible for the Leviathan in the Bible to actually be a real monster and not just a metaphor? Um, oh, we Okay, so the Leviathan from the Bible has been uh, historically people have said it could have been a whale that was seen and a lot of people have said that it sounds like a very large crocodile based on it the scales on its back cannot be sundered and things like that that type of stuff so either one could be i mean primitive people see a whale a giant sperm whale for example we live in a world focused on roi kpis and ebitda at o'reilly we measure success a little bit differently We measure it in code releases that go out without a hitch, careers grown, and that little nugget of sage advice that helps make the impossible suddenly possible. It's your people who create success. Invest in them and the rest of the numbers fall in place. 
Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. Or something like that, or a blue whale, and they think it's like this, you know, biblical beast. Or if there was a rare crocodile out there that was like 25 feet long or something like that, I'm sure that would have struck fear in the people's hearts as well. All right. So if I were to take my son down, where am I taking him to go find some of these teeth? You know, I know some people really? actually down there. Yeah. So I could probably arrange something for somebody to meet up with you maybe or something. I would love, 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 love yeah. for all of a sudden. Uh, if you want. To be yeah, I, I, I have a couple of uh, fossil white shark teeth. I'll be happy to send you one for him too. So, Oh, he would die. He would die. It's yeah. it's his birthday it's next pleasure. week. It's his birthday next week. Oh well, then definitely hit me up and DM privately and stuff, and I'll get you something in the mail tomorrow. Oh, that'd be wonderful. We got four and a half minutes with you tonight. Do you think we are ever going to scientifically prove the existence that there still are monsters living in the ocean that we haven't seen? I think with all the drones alone that are people are starting to get and put out there, I think it's more and more likely that eventually a really, really big shark will be spotted. The question will be, will there be anything around it to scale it? Will the camera and the drone be able to accurately you know, calculate its size? Or do we need something with it to reference it for comparison? See? But I mean, I, th- I think that's likely. And I think as underwater drone technology improves, I think that's going to come up too. I'm I'm sure lots of things over time are going to be, you know, turn out to be So you don't you true. don't think Megalodon's the one that ran into that US submarine a few months ago? Come if on, it was give a, me hope here, if, Max. If it was a marine organism, I am a firm believer based on if you've read Monsters Marine Mysteries that there are squid down there that can that are sometimes pushed 200 feet in length. And a squid of enormous size like that could damage a submarine. Um, it could be anything. It could be a, some sort of enormous shark, some sort of unknown life form. It could be, it could have been a pissed off sperm whale. It could have run into a mountain. I don't know all the details for it. And obviously we're not going to, because they're not going to come out and say, I mean, did they say that it, it ran into an organism? No, they didn't say, they just said that it hit something. They weren't sure what it hit and it, you know, it puts a big dents in it. To the point where they had to sail the, they had to sail it up at surface, uh, back to the U, back to its dock. Well, you remember the story of the USS Stein, that destroyer from like nineteen sixty nine or seventy nine, whatever year it was, that was attacked by a squid that took out its sonar, and the squid claws were in the sonar dome. Yes. and they said that's that suggested a squid five times larger than any known specimen. So, I mean, there's things out there that are capable of damaging military machines, you know, so who knows what, I mean, uh, a shark could have, if there was a giant shark down there, maybe it thought, you know, I'm going to, this is a slow moving whale. I'm going to take a bite out of it. Like he did with the whale shark. I mean, the sub is much larger. I don't know how big the submarine is, but I would think that they would take something really, really big or really stupid you know, to try and like take a bite out of a three or 400 foot, metal tube, you know, but John, it could just be a territorial thing. Jonathan thinks it hit another Chinese sub. Not me, man. It's yeah. Megalodon. 
it's Megalodon and, <laughs> and Megalodon swims in that area, you know, and it, it may, for all we know, it may have been Godzilla for all we know. You can't, you cannot turn down Godzilla in the area where this happened. Godzilla is a possibility. All right. We got, I would rather it be Godzilla. We got 90 seconds left, my friend, with you tonight, Max. Use a little Godzilla. Hmm? 90 seconds. Tell everybody where they can find your books, your website, and get a hold of you. Awesome. Um, on Facebook or Instagram, it's just Max Hawthorne Author. All one word, obviously. Um, and my website is either maxhawthorne.com or cronusrising.com. Cronus with a key. Okay. I can't talk this late. Sorry. Um, but anyway, and uh, yeah, all the books from Monsters and Mysteries to the Cronus Rising series are on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. Although Amazon does have exclusive for uh, Purgatory right now because it's only out on Kindle and we have a thing with them. But uh, yeah, I encourage people to go on there, check out the site. I have a newsletter that comes out. So if you're on my website, definitely register for that. There are some free downloads for some of the books and stuff on there. There's a paleo gallery. If you like artwork or prehistoric marine beasts and stuff, check out the paleo gallery. There's like 150 great pieces of art from some top artists from all over the world, too. And you're more than welcome. Appreciate you very much, Max. And can't wait to do it again with you. I did send you my address, by the way. I did. Cool. You got it, man. And I'll I appreciate it. Max Hawthorne, everyone. My favorite dude when it comes to talking all things monstrous in the ocean and super sharks. They're out there. They're only one step behind another evolution to bring the Megalodon back. That's my theory. Coming up next, we're going to head to the swamp. A resident swamp dweller is going to be here along with Tim Senor. With the UFO report, we continue on with our three of Spaced Out Radio right around the corner. Stay tuned. Great show, buddy. Great Thank show. You. Always no, fun with you. You get all credit, man. No way, man. That's all you tonight. Godzilla. Godzilla. Anytime we can drop a Godzilla reference, that's good stuff. Yeah, as long as Toho doesn't sue us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My friend, I'll let you head off to bed, and uh, we'll okay. have a good night. All right, man. I'll send you details on what I'm sending you. I got something really special in mind for him. Uh, How old is he going to be? Nine. You got it. All I'll right. take good care of him. All right, brother. All right? I appreciate that. Have a great night. Take Thank care. Thank you. Max Hawthorne, everybody. What a great dude. I just love that guy. All right, let's move Dirty Filth over here. Get rid of Jonathan's comments there. And I'm going to step away for a quick second. We'll be right back. I'm just changing the music.
right. Fast Hemi, how you doing, buddy? Nice to see you. <coughs> Gilberto Ochoa, welcome to SOR and uh, our chat room. Uh, John is taking a break right now. We've got just over a minute to go here, guys. Hi, Nikki. How are you? Dirty filth. What the hell is that? You're just going to have to wait and see, Dave. All right. All right. Hey, Greggy Gilgan from Adelaide, Australia. Welcome to SOR Chat. How you doing, man? Thank you for joining us. There's just surprisingly uh, a large amount of Australians that listen to Space Hill Radio. I know. That's because we're on tomorrow. We're in the future for them. So they get in the, the show in the afternoon. All right, 10 seconds here, everyone. And thank you to Terry, Thomas, Lala, and Spacey Tree times two for the super chats tonight. Very much appreciate it. Here comes hour three. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Third and final hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hi to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America and digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club, Zingaro. Zingaro is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as the clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram, at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok, at Spaced Out Radio. Now... Let's head to the swamp. Our resident swamp dweller joins us for another spooky story. 
Hi, Spaced Out Radio listeners. This is Swamp Dweller. It's time for your nightly dose of spookiness on the show. If you have an interesting encounter or a spooky story that you would like to share, be sure to submit them in at swampdweller.net. You can also find our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash swampdwellerreads. Now, let's chill out, relax, and together, let's enter the swamp. This event happened last summer in 2021. It was a beautiful day, and my friend Krista, AJ, and I were all off work, an occasion that never really happens. We decided to go on a hike, smoke a bit, and then get dinner. It was a fantastic day, but we wanted to keep it going. We all wanted to do something spooky and exciting. We live in a small town on the border of Maryland and West Virginia, so things got boring quickly especially in a place with no nightlife. We spent some time researching some creepy places we could drive to. We read about a back road where two girls were murdered and decapitated outside a college town in West Virginia. The stories say at night you can see the two girls searching for their heads on the roadside. We must have driven for about an hour looking for this road, but nothing exciting happened when we finally found it. None of us wanted to waste our time searching anymore, so we drove to an allegedly haunted cemetery about an hour away. The cemetery has over 14,000 graves and has a rather creepy history. It has a section of graves designated as the Historic District, which houses the very first tombs dating back to the 1800s. At the cemetery entrance is a vast Victorian-style house used as a funeral parlor. However, it had been abandoned and out of use for about 20 years at this point. In the middle of the massive cemetery was a mausoleum at the top of a tall hill. The mausoleum was a large marble structure and was highly costly when it was built in the early 1900s. According to quick Google researches, we read that most paranormal activity had been experienced at the mausoleum. We started at the historic district close to the cemetery entrance. Krista downloaded a spirit box app on her phone. I know what you're thinking. Apps aren't always accurate, but I genuinely believe this one is. A spirit box is a device, or in this case an app, that rapidly switches radio stations to the point to where it's just white noise. It's believed that spirits can manipulate the radio waves to speak to those in this realm. The app also had a built-in EMF reader, which records changes in electromagnetic field. Again, it is believed that spirit energy can manipulate electromagnetic fields. The more beeps, the more activity is happening around you. Anyway, we wander around the district with the app up and running. We asked a few questions out loud along the way. Is there anyone who wants to speak to us? How did you pass away? How long have you been here? These are fundamental questions that the spirit typically answers. Throughout the cemetery, there was absolutely no activity. We occasionally heard little blips on the radio. We even made out the words hello and savior, but other than that, it was rather quiet. After about an hour or so, we decided to drive up to the mausoleum for one last attempt to contact someone or something. I should mention that AJ was on crutches at the time, recovering from knee surgery, so we couldn't explore that long without him needing a break. 
we drove up the road that spiraled around the hill until we got to the building. The closer we got, we noticed fog rolling around the mountain but nowhere else in the area. We pulled up to the steep two-level stairway that led to the front of the building, and I took a few pictures from the bottom of the hill as I was taking pictures during our explorations around the entire site. Krista and I walked up to the stairs while AJ wobbles. As soon as I got to the top, I felt uneasy, but I brushed it off as being creeped out by the fog and the creepy appearance of the mausoleum. Krista and AJ were over it, complaining that we hadn't seen or heard anything and that the online stories were all lies. Well, this was a bust, said Krista as she turned on the spirit box. Is there anyone here that would like to speak to us? I asked into the open air, not expecting anything to happen, just like the rest of the night. Typing out this next part makes me tremble. This part is nowhere near dull, though I might have preferred to be bored rather than what we experienced. As soon as I completed my sentence, the stations of the spirit box stopped. The sound that came over the speaker was the most inhuman, demonic sound I had ever heard. It made the most guttural, blood-curdling growl that no human I've ever met could recreate. It replays in my head whenever I tell this story, burned into my brain where I can't escape it. We all looked at each other and immediately screamed and ran down the steps. When I say scream, I mean the entire town below probably woke up from it. I ran down the steps and started to pass AJ who was hopping down the steps as fast as he could. I see him drop one of his crutches and start hobbling down with one of his legs. Leave it! Go! I yelled as I ran past him and unlocked the car. I floored it out of there as fast as I could while we all caught our breath. What the hell was that? Krista screamed. No one had an answer. We were all just dumbfounded and in shock. Eventually, I turned around to go get AJ's crutch that was left on the stairs. I ran as fast as I could while singing silly hip-hop songs to help distract me from the fact that I was entering the scary place again. I got the crutch, hopped back in, and we finally made our way back home. We passed that old funeral parlor I mentioned as we exited the cemetery. As we drove by, we saw the lights flicker on and off three times. Um, isn't that place supposed to be abandoned? AJ asked with uneasiness in his voice. I don't think any of this place is abandoned, I said as we got onto the highway. When we got home, we looked at the pictures we had taken. All of my photos around the cemetery turned out clear and had no real abnormalities, aside from a few quote-unquote orbs, though I'm skeptical about them. All right, thank you to Swamp Dweller for another spooky story that he brings to us every single night during the week. Go to Swamp Dweller on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Swamp Dweller Reads for thousands of these stories and encounters that are absolutely creep you on out. And we love it having the Swamp Dweller here on a nightly basis. Well, it is time once again where we head on to another UFO report joining us. Request a free demo of the O'Reilly Learning Platform at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. When you look into Discover Student Loans, what you see might surprise you. We can help cover your college costs, don't charge you fees, and give you cash rewards for good grades. Ready to apply? Visit discoverstudentloans.com. Limitations apply.
tonight. Nobody's gonna know. They're gonna know. Mr. Tim Seymour. Mr. Tim Senor, good to have you back on the UFO Report. How you doing, man? Doing well, Dave. How are you? I am doing great. You know, we are only about three and a half weeks out from going to Denver for the MUFON Symposium. And I am pumped right up about that. You're going to be there with me, and we're going to meet up with uh, Thin Lizzy from our weekend crew and her husband, Scary Gary, and a number of other really cool people out there. I'm stoked, man. I am absolutely oh, stoked. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble getting us all together in the same place. Forget about it. I can't wait. Oh, dude, tell me about it. You know, one of the things that uh, I'm looking forward to is every time you go to these conferences, there's always new people who you've only seen their face or heard their voice, but you actually get to see them and you're like, oh, my God, you know, like that's Katie Grabowski or that's Dave McDonald or that's Michael Schratt or whomever it may be, you know? Right, right. And nine times out of ten, they're totally approachable, and they've got an equally interesting story when you meet them. So it's great; it's a fun time to mix. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and go ahead. No, I was going to say, and you, what a show tonight! You've got sharks and ghosts. I can't look away for a second. I'm like going to have nightmares tonight. Scared the daylights <laughs> out of me. That damn Max Hawthorne. I'm telling you that. Great that stuff. This is why I don't go in the ocean, man. This is why I don't go in the ocean. There is just way too much that can hurt you, harm you, kill you, eat you. You know how it goes, man. And you know, I'm not yeah. like I'm not like you, man. I'm a meal, okay? You know, you're like a toothpick. I'm an hors d'oeuvre. You're not even I'm an, an hors d'oeuvre, man. Yeah. Not even an hors d'oeuvre. Right. I'm a meal. Well, it'd be hard. I'm hard to catch when I'm in the ocean. I'm usually on my board, so. Um, like I said, I I sense it when there's something to I actually, whenever I surf, I do get a feeling. And like if I get that feeling, I just get out. I don't know if there's something underneath me or not. But I do get spooked out there. And I think a lot of people do. Just got to be in touch with that. Just go with your instinct. If your gut says get out, get out. Well, the, <laughs> your first story of the night, I am personally going to take credit for. I knew you were going to love Be- it. Because yeah. this doesn't happen... If it wasn't for Dave, Dave That's did right. this. Dave is the one 100%. who made this happen. And you know what? Yeah. I'm not even I'm not even giving ego on this, man. Not even giving ego. Right. So, so I'm going to give you, while I sit here and pat my own back, I'm going to give That's you right. the story that Canada has officially announced they are going to share UFO info with the United States. And this all started February of 2021 when I got Lou Elizondo to meet up with officials and members of parliament of the Canadian government. That's when it all started. That's right. And here we are today. So what's going on? So as you know, Dave, Fantastic work, by the way. Um, You know, this is just great stuff. And so in recent letters that have been made public uh, between Kathleen 
Hepbel Macis, uh, and Larry McGuire, the MP, uh, we're talking about collaboration between governments and sharing of data and some of the research that's already been done by Canada looking into some of the incursions of potential UFO, UAP, or drones over some of the um, nuclear facilities that are uh, around the country. And in conjunction with the United States, they're going to start looking into some of their UAP, UFO, and potential drone incursions over some of their nuclear facilities. So it's a matter of comparing notes and starting to get into a collaborative uh, potential working relationship between the two countries where we can actually hone in on what this is rather than more conjecture. And so some of the key players are now starting to really take notice. And it does seem like the movements that have been part of public hearings and congressional hearings here in the United States are starting to resound around the world. With the other countries like China and Russia and now Canada getting on board, sharing data, getting into the know with the rest of the planet on what could potentially be coming in and current over our nuclear facilities to start, but really all over our planet and all of over, over our skies. They're everywhere. And, and you know what? Dave. It had to start somewhere, Tim. And in Canada, Larry McGuire, who is the, in opposition with the Conservative Party of Canada and is the you know critic, what we call up here a critic, to the natural resources, he is the one who used information that was public on whether or not UAPs had been seen over nuclear power facilities. Now, from what I know, they were looking for an in in order to get this story out in Canada. You just can't go on the floor of the House of Commons and ask the Minister of Defense, hey, by the way, do we have UFOs? flying over us. That doesn't work that way. You need to have something where there is some sort of vital security type threat, if we use that. The fact that drones or orbs had been seen and recorded over Canadian nuclear power facilities, because we do not have any nuclear missile silos in Canada, well, that coincided and put the door open to the idea that what uh, Robert Salas had been saying regarding the missile crisis back in the 60s and 70s around Minot in North Dakota, all the way over to Malmstrom in Montana, that we were able to, uh, how can we put it, open the door to that conversation, or at least Larry McGuire was. So the fact right. the fact that now... Larry McGuire had been pressuring a gentleman named John Hannaford, who is the Deputy Minister to Natural Resources in Canada, to learn about this. And McGuire also pressured the staff of Canada's nuclear power facilities to start talking to their American counterparts regarding UAP. This is just the beginning. The door is now open between the two nations publicly. Look, we're not going to get what NORAD has got out of Canada. We're not going to get that. There's still a lot of stuff that needs to come out. Now, McGuire wants full disclosure, as he stated on this show. But, I mean, you got to open the door somewhere. And unlike NASA, 
I think this is a great way to start. It really is. Right. And so these letters were obviously in direct response to questions that were raised um, by Manitoba member parliament, uh, uh, Larry McGuire, raised in the parliamentary committee meetings earlier this year. And so I'm assuming that um, that's around the time that this information was kind of being disseminated. And we started making those discussions between the United States and the Can- and Canada public. Um, and so obviously this comes shortly after the unclassified reports that were re- that were released in the United States. And so now Congress is obviously taking the issue seriously. And so now ca- Canada's like, so should our government. You know, and, and I fully agree. There's still a lot of news that has to come out. Okay, we know, and we got to start putting pressure on, we know Prime Minister Trudeau was read in. We know that. We know it happened between August of 2019 and December of 2019. We know it happened. He was read in by former uh, ambassador to the United States, David McNaughton. Okay, And this is all stuff that we had been saying for the last couple of years, trying to be one of the voices along with Daniel Otis, who is very on top of this information. Right. You know, could I ask, Dave, why do you think um, Canada is focusing on the UAP reports concerning nuclear facilities, whereas the United States seem even from the beginning to be focused more on what they would consider, quote unquote, a threat narrative? And that's how they kind of released it, whereas Canada seems to be a little bit more progressive with their focus and seem to come out kind of in more of a a fact-based manner rather than potentially fear-based manner like the Americans did. The one thing that our politicians, and it's not an us versus them, our military... No, I understand. You know, when... when, And I'm going to give a little bit of insider information here, and I can't say where I got it from. Okay? Please. They knew the files were out there, and they knew where those files were. The problem that they had was the files are so scattered in Ottawa between Canada's security agency, CSIS, the Canadian Department of National Defense, Transport Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the uh, NAV Canada, which controls all navigation in Canada, and a number of other alphabet agencies that they really didn't know where to start or begin in order to get the information because there is no mm-hmm. centralized area. That is the goal of the conservative government. And Larry Maguire stated on this show, he's got support from other parties now, except with the exception of the, of the party in power, which is the liberal party of Canada to set up a centralized organization to try and bring all the UFO files under one roof. That's what they want. And whether they get it or not, that is going to be very different. So they needed a way 
to not come at this from a, th a threat narrative perspective, but a cautionary perspective of how is this affecting Canada or potentially affecting Canada, which could have consequences not only in the most populous province of Ontario, but eastern Canada as well. Because out west, we don't have any nuclear power facilities. They are only from Ontario eastern all the way to Newfoundland. And this is where we needed to get that in. McGuire needed a way to get it out to the public. He has been looking at this subject right. since 2017. And he and his right. staff members needed a way to finally break that open. Now, there are other politicians that are looking into this. One is on the defense portion. One is on the RCMP trying to figure out what is going on. I'm still waiting for a couple of phone calls from people that have not arrived yet, and I'm hoping maybe next week if I get an opportunity to do so, I am going to hit the phones. I may try for a couple of FOIA requests as well regarding the Prime Minister being read in in 2019, as well as I want to know if there's any videos. There are video cameras all perched all over Canada's nuclear facilities. And right. if there are UFOs flying over, they may have videos. And the only way we're going to see those That's videos right. is via potentially a FOIA request. So we need to be able to make That's those. Right. But in Canada, they're not called FOIA requests. They're called access to information requests. So that is something that we have to try and and you know and work on moving this ball forward with the Canadian story. And I think the Canadian story and our American listeners may not agree with this, but I think the Canadian story and it heating up more here if this little fire continues to grow, it could be of major help to the United States people who want full disclosure and not just confirmation, which is what we're getting right now. Tim Senor will return right after this on the UFO Report, and we are going to get into China's Sky Eye. What did it find? And then the Ariel Phenomena movie. We'll get into that as well on the UFO Report coming up next right after the break. Hi, Chili B7, Cliff Sai. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi, gorgeous Kim Jellen. Corbanian, how you doing? Who else was in here? SP, the gorgeous Jenny girl, how are you? And Die Behind the Wheel, welcome to SOR Chat. And who else is here that is coming on in? Wayak, welcome to SOR Chat. And I think we is good and caught up right there. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, bud. The timing is so sweet. With NASA getting on board with their own investigations, do you have um, any knowledge of a potential task force over there in the Maple Leaf country? It won't happen until the liberals make it happen. They're too busy mm -hmm. being, and, and I'm, I'm not throwing a political pot shot here. This is a an honest observation. They're too busy trying to save their own asses and be woke at the same time that they don't care about anything that is of a defensive or 
a how can I put it? Let's just call it a defensive nature right now. Okay. They're trying to figure out a way to stop the bleeding, you know, and if we had, uh, you know, if uh, they hadn't cut a deal with one of the parties to remain in power, then who knows, you know, there's, there's another Trudeau scandal that's, that's coming forward. And, uh, did you find the letters that were released questionable as far as the wordage as to how they've handled UAP cases in the past and the potential that they may have discarded data? Uh, and so there are no cases per se. Oh, there's a lot of cases. There's a lot of cases. According, according well, so according to the letters, there were no cases. Um, of, you know, unidentified or even drone incursions over nuclear facilities in Canada. That's what the letter stated. McGuire found three. He found three. The rest of them, they don't know. We tell. Well, do you know details? Please do tell. That's why I'm saying we need to put in a access to information request regarding potential videos. Okay. Didn't Canada have a major data release n- earlier this year with lots of cases? Well, they did, but I mean that's that's all stuff that they had already given to Chris Rutkowski. The juicy stuff. Right. The juicy stuff. I mean, we're talking dots in the sky, okay, but the juicy stuff, what we want, that's all still top secret. Right? Right. Right. Uh, Kim Jellin, um, this a- CTV News, uh, thanks to Daniel Otis, has really taken a lead on this. And thanks to us, other media outlets like Saga 960, where we broadcast, are, are also taking a, a really uh, big push on this as well. So it is right. starting. Well, there's definitely um, some slippery wordage in page three where there's a paragraph that you know dignifies the fact that a lot of the data gets dumped you know, over a, in a timely fashion um, as routine. And then in the next paragraph says that there are no recorded cases. And so I just found, you know, the disclaimer right before the disclosure, quote unquote, was rather disheartening as far as mm-hmm. something in, in paperwork, as right. far as I was personally concerned. Right. But um, it definitely showed that the steps were being taken and, you know, kind of, it made me feel that it is, it is a trickle of information. And even in it's this country, coming. we've seen it be baby steps. These are For small sure. steps towards a big goal. For sure. I, I think Ooh. it would be absolutely massive, massive, if we got a UAP video out of Canada, I think it would be, it would yeah. be, it would be as big in the States as it would up here. And I think it would be bigger in the I States than it would be here. Uh, thank you to dirty filth for his amazing art tonight. And uh, he has pulled the plug on the evening and said, screw it. My hands are sore. I'm done for the night. Thank you. Dirty filth. You are amazing. Love you, buddy. And uh, we've got about 30 seconds here before we're going to run here to the final half hour of the show. And uh, Tim Sinor is here tonight. 
Do you have your speech ready? Haven't even started. Attaboy. Oh, yeah. I love procrastinators. Me too. Makes for the best. Here we go, guys. tonight on Space Out Radio. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate it. I want to remind you that if you've missed most of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire, Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We continue on tonight with the UFO report. We have Tim Senor sitting by us right now. And Tim, you know, coming out of China, are you buying this story that they may have been picking up signals from aliens? Tell us about it. Yeah, well, it's still up in the air, and definitely there's people on both sides of this story that have their own opinions. And so it all started with a headline that said, China says it may have detected signals from alien civilizations. And then it was picked up by a report website of Science and Technology Daily in China, and it's just gone around the world as a, as a, a potential real case and a real story. And so rumors are bound but the truth seems to be that it's not necessarily... Ice tea knows iced tea, which is why I get my iced tea at Raising Cane's. We're both fresh all day. Sometimes we're sweet. Sometimes we're unsweet, Jack. So chill out with your favorite iced teas this summer at Raising Cane's. One love. <laughs> iced tea knows iced tea, which is why I get my iced tea at Raising Cane's. We're both fresh all day. Sometimes we're sweet. Sometimes we're unsweet, Jack. So chill out with your favorite iced teas this summer at Raising Cane's. One love. Surely aliens phoning us from across the cosmos. It might just be us. And so it has Chinese astronomers stumbling upon the techno signature of a distant alien civilization. Unfortunately for UFO tragic and Alia 51 fans, the answer is no. But numerous reports over the last 72 to and more so hours have suggested that an anomalous radio signal from deep space could point to extraterrestrial technology. I personally am pretty skeptical, but we have seen these signatures come up in the past. And along with a few uh, serious news agencies in China, they have a lot of people wondering if the real problem is that the media jumps straight on aliens every time, or if we have to look deeper into some of the information before we necessarily rule it out. Dave, what are your thoughts? You know what? There's two ways of thinking here. I want to believe. I really do. But it's China. Okay? And knowing how a communistic government works and the way they know how to use propaganda, especially to popularize themselves, I don't know whether or not we should believe this. I really right. don't. 
Right. Well, the leak actually originally came from the scientific study researchers themselves, and they leaked it originally to other SETI researchers. And soon, soon between the group amongst themselves, they were deciphering over these weak signals. Non-repeating signals are often something that they look into a little deeper. And so our American astrophysicists, such as, such as John T. Horner, have been looking into this from the University of Southern Queensland. And in fact, believe it or not, there are some questionable possibilities that this could be a signal from deep space. So although it's easy to jump away from aliens, we can't 100% rule it out. It's just often media hypes it up to the point where we just automatically rule it out because we see aliens. But again, this was a, uh, a, a, and I can even say it's a radio frequency interference or an RFI that can sometimes come from cell phones, trans TV transmitters, radio, radio, satellites, and even a device you're reading this article from or watching this show from. So a lot of the RF signals that they could be receiving could be mundane coming as an earthly origin. But still, a lot of people are still considering it a potential. And it could very well be, Tim. It, it could very well be. You know, but I just look at the games that have been played. If, if, if it was, say, Portugal or Romania or, heck, e even Egypt or, or South Africa or Australia, I mean, name a country. I'm not just saying an allied country. But name India or Thailand. If it was any other country, I would, and they said, hey, this looks like it could be from an alien civilization. I'm buying it. But on the flip mm -hmm. side, okay, so that's my... You're questioning the source. I'm, I'm questioning <laughs> the source. But on the flip side, it is rather odd that, A, it comes from the, the Chinese UFO community. And that the story has somewhat disappeared since it came out. Why would they make it disappear? You know, it, right. it's not being found on Weibo, their, their version of Facebook. It's not being... Very quickly. Yeah. yeah removed. So obviously something or someone got in the way of that story. And that adds to the mystique to me where maybe they did find something. And, they, and whitewash it. Well, not just that, yeah. but they want to keep it away from the Americans because they, yeah. you know, they don't want the Americans to get any sort of love on this. You know, when this could be a big Chinese story, so I could see right. both sides. This is where I'm sitting fifty-fifty on this. <laughs> yeah, that's my problem on it too. And I've read, you know, as much as I could find on it, and um, I was really split down the middle as to whether it was even a, re you know, something that was worth their time to look deeper into, could it just be a mundane RF signal of our own? But then I keep referring back to one of my favorite films, Contact, where, you know, there's, there's an edge of reality to everything that happens. And so, you know, I'm a little bit split down the middle. And I encourage everyone just to look a little bit deeper. Don't just consider it, you know, a no. Just, uh, you know, look a little deeper and make your own mind up. Absolutely. Absolutely freaky, man. Absolutely freaky. Yeah. All right, let's go to your final story. You know, we've all been talking about for years this school in South a in, in Africa 
that allegedly had a UFO landing and aliens talking to young students called Ariel. And there is now a movie out regarding this. And I'll tell you, if there is any story that, that is profound in this industry, I believe it's this one, man. Tell us about it. Taking place in Rua, Zimbabwe. That's right. In 1994, over 60 children witnessed an unidentified craft land outside their schoolyard. And 25 years later, this incident is still fresh in all those students' memories. So they all, consent- they all continue to search for answers and the courage to speak their truth. In this first feature documentary about the aerial school UFO incident, a young woman returns to her school in rural Zimbabwe, the place that, at age nine, shattered her reality. And we get to meet a respected BBC war reporter who reluctantly covered this event, ultimately leading him to risk his career on the one story that haunted him the most, jeopardizing his reputation in Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard psychiatrist John Mack, whose validation of this witnesses of these witnesses made this mass sighting impossible to ignore. And so this film follows a BBC war reporter and Harvard's psychiatrist, Dr. John Mack, through uh, the journeys back to rural aerial school and interviews all of the children. And so in this hour and a half long documentary, you can get a really great inside look at what really took place. And it did it in such a beautiful way. I absolutely love what Randall Nickerson did with this film, a four year project of passion and you can absolutely see it in every inch of film that he portrays here well you know what too john about this case is these children didn't ask john. or i'm sorry <laughs> you Tim, called me john I'm sorry. i love that uh, i apologize those are big shoes to fill buddy they, they are they are <laughs> uh but and thank you for filling in for them uh tim the, the, My one, pleasure. the one thing that um uh, that really sets this case apart is these children wanted nothing of this. They didn't know anything about this. They weren't podcast. I mean, granted, 94, there was no podcasting, but they didn't, they weren't looking for exposure or, or their 15 minutes of fame, like many people coming in to the UFO community, you know, over the years. And we've, we've seen it all happen over the years as well. And these children just want to know what went on and how it went on. And they knew from that moment on when that spaceship landed and those creatures came out of that spaceship and started communicating with them, they knew that their lives would be forever changed from that moment. And in a way that very few humans actually get the opportunity to do that. And I feel for these kids. You know, they're no longer kids. They're, you know, they're pushing uh, late 30s, early 40s now. But they are to the point, are they, are they that old? Maybe maybe 30s. 1994. So what is that? That's 20, 28 years ago. Yeah, so they're pushing yeah. late 30s. And the idea that they have had to live with this and the messages and see... The, the world change 
not for the better in front of them. It's scary, man. It's scary. That's a fearful life. Potentially, potentially, or it could be an enlightened life. You know, a lot of you, if you have a chance to see the documentary, everyone, I recommend it because there's a lot of um, showing how the children did progress because they do come back and talk about it later. Um, And some of them do have different opinions of the message, perhaps, and how they interacted with that information from their childhood and how it affected their life. I think it's really insightful. And again, like I said, beautifully shot, really um, not fancy, very, very like um, classic filmmaking, like good film, like good documentary filmmaking where... um, it's just beautifully sewn together and he weaves a few different narratives throughout. Um, it's, it's really a great piece. And again, let's consider this huge fact that most people that are considered a UFO researcher or a historian, they point to this case as being the best case. And so let's definitely discover every bit of information there is. And this documentary obviously is like digging deep and I must say, there's footage in there I have definitely never seen before, drawings I've never seen before, and a lot of insight on a case that was hugely impactful to this field. And to see the impact, again, like I said, on those witnesses and some of the school teachers um, that are revisiting it, I think lend a huge amount of credibility to it. It's an emotional ride. It really is. You can't miss it. Well, you know what? We've seen the impact of a number of UFOs, UAP, uh, this year. I mean, whether it is this one that's just coming out, we've seen a very powerful one from uh, 1097 Productions of Caroline Corey with the UAPX crowd, A Tear in the Sky. Tear in the Sky was fantastic. It it was. Uh, We've seen other ones come out from places like Third Phase of Moon and and. Over the, over the last six, eight months, there's been a number of them that have shot out of the cannon. And I'll tell you, the, the intrigue that this is bringing is at an all-high time level. And the right people are speaking in these documentaries. The right people are doing the research. And, you know, I'm not about to sit here and gripe and complain and say which one is better. So far, I've liked them all. I really have. And probably the, yeah. re- the reason why is we're using people who in the nineties and two thousands weren't on every documentary with the same message, just under a different name, you know, that's right. And I, and also at a time when it was highly stigmatized, right. People would get in a lot of trouble and, um, were, you know, ousted from positions in the BBC or at Harvard, not all the way, but we remember how John Mack was treated. Um, well, this film highlights it and the life's work of these people in a beautiful way. And so absolutely, I think it does show the fact that this, this narrative is changing on this topic and that is coming out with a lot of great filmmakers that are highlighting this topic. You're so right. No, I think it's wonderful. And the best part about it is it really seems like it's going to continue for a while and let's hope it does. Because I know you have talked to a number of people who have interest in in putting stuff on tape now. You know, it's not just about the radio shows anymore or the podcasts or the YouTube channels. People want this 
documented. And I think with the, you know, the more we see fighter pilots coming out, the more we see uh, scientists starting to come out with their facts and figures, and the more we see the reins starting to loosen on many people, whether it's Elizondo, whether it's Cahill, or whether it's anybody, we need to make sure that that we pay attention to those hidden messages that are going to be inside because it's not all going to be nuts and bolts. It's all not going to be facts and figures. There are going to be some big documentaries coming up, I think, within the next five years that are should blow our socks off. Can you imagine if a proper documentary on Lou Elizondo is done? What's he going to release? Right. Especially with if his book ever gets published, what happens after that? It's going to be amazing. The film. <laughs> I would love there to be the film. But, um, you know, this, you're absolutely right. This is going to be a topic that is just going to continue. And right. the more people that have the talent to tell the narrative, I think the better. The more witnesses that are encouraged to come out with their evidence or their story, I think the better. I mean, just in your chat, I am sure that 9 out of 10 have an amazing story that they could share with us. But, um, you know, potentially they're just putting their toe in the water by being a listener and getting the experience of being able to listen to all the other people that are having these fantastic uh, experiences. I mean, I myself am an experiencer and I remember being able to come out on your show. That's a privilege to be able to share publicly. And and as much as you offer that platform, I'm sure... um, your audience appreciates hearing those stories in, in one way or another, being able to relate. And so, again, this is an ever-changing topic. And like you said, our opinions could change tomorrow. But for right now, uh, it's amazing. And potentially, it's one of the greatest scientific discoveries and topics of our generation. I definitely that right. believe that. You got that right. Tim Senor, you hang around for a few minutes. We're going to conclude here with Shirky Poo's News. What time is it? It's time for Shirky Poo's News. All right. What does Shirky Poo have for us tonight? Oh, let's head over to Russia, shall we? A woman was eaten by nearly two dozen pet cats after she collapsed and died in her home. Police went to the woman's home after receiving a call from a concerned co-worker and were horrified to discover her partially eaten remains along with 20 hungry cats. Authorities believe she had been dead for two weeks. The unidentified woman, who lived in Rostov region of Russia, worked as a cat breeder and kept the 20 Maine Coon pedigree felines on the property. Some of the cats have since been rehomed to new owners for about 50 bucks each, while... Animal Rescue took the rest in because they're cannibals. Cannibal cats. The cats were left alone on their own for two weeks. There was no other food. So what else are they supposed to eat? Well, let's eat the human. Yep. That's what a cat would think. A woman claims that a portal opening in 2012 unleashed her ability to speak alien. It seems E.T. phoned home and they called back Mafe Walker, the Colombian TikToker who claims to be fluent in alien. Still, still Mafe is happy to showcase her skills on TV, appearing on the Mexican morning show Venga La Alegria to explain how she uses a galactic portal to receive messages. And guess what? She'll do it for a small fee 
of $75 when you hire her for her psychic gifts as well. $75. Hmm. Well, I bet you you didn't know that there had been a war going on between Denmark and Canada for half a century. It's true. 50 years. There's been an intercontinental war going on between the two countries in the Arctic. Not only that, but it's been raging for a long time. Yeah, but we haven't fought this war with firearms, politicians, or weapons of mass destruction. No, true to its name, Denmark and Canada waged a war using whiskey and a flag. The conflict, if you could call it that, had centered around Hans Island. It's a tiny, barren, half-square-mile chunk of rock peeking out of the sea between Greenland, which is controlled by Denmark, and Ellesmere Island, controlled by Canada. There's absolutely nothing on Hans Island, not even a single tree or shrub, but both countries really wanted to own it. So for the past 49 years, when Denmark puts up their flag, Canada removes it, puts up a Canadian flag, and leaves a bottle of whiskey. Yes, and when the Danes come back, they take down our flag and leave a bottle of whiskey. I'll tell you, it's been one hell of a battle, but eventually we're learning to share. Both countries have decided to share the island. And finally tonight, you may not know who Snoop Dogg is, And if you do, well, you know that he likes to dabble in his hippie lettuce quite a bit. But, you know, he actually has a person who rolls his joints for him? Yes. So because of the current situation in the economy, and knowing that Snoop Dogg needs to have his doobies rolled properly, well, he's given his blunt roller a raise. In a recent tweet, Snoop Dogg confessed that he had to up his personal weed artisan salary because of inflation. Let no one say the man isn't a good, good boss. Thank you to Shirky Poo for the news. Thank you to Tim Senor for coming in on the UFO report. Dirty filth drawing cartoons right through the show tonight. Swamp Dweller for another wonderful story. And Max Hawthorne telling us that Megalodon still may live in the depths of the oceans, which is why we should never go swimming in salt water. We got Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal rocking in the background with Little Brother is watching. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio, rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in at home, at work, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, LGAB, Facebook, the Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter at hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Remember, this show is copyrighted by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us because together, my friends, we're watching. We own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, 
the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, we've got room for them, too. Good night. Iced tea knows iced tea, which is why I get my iced tea at Raisin Cane's. We're both fresh all day. Sometimes we're sweet. Sometimes we're unsweet, Jack. So chill out with your favorite iced teas this summer at Raisin Cane's. One love. <laughs> iced tea knows iced tea, which is why I get my iced tea at Raisin Cane's. We're both fresh all day. Sometimes we're sweet. Sometimes we're unsweet, Jack. So chill out with your favorite iced teas this summer at Raisin Cane's. One love. <laughs>